Hi, everyone. Welcome to Completely Beatles. My name is David Dedrick from the Sneaky Dragon Podcast. I'm Ian Boothby, also from the Sneaky Dragon Podcast. Which is a coincidence. Yep, just some, a coincidence. Of some note. Yeah, some people say there's no such thing as coincidence. I think this proves them wrong. <laughs> but welcome to the show, and uh, we're going to be covering, as we do... As we do. Uh, a complete album, complete Beatles album, and the singles that were uh, orbiting it at that time. Yes, that came out in the vicinity of that album. Right, adjacent. Adjacent to the album, yes. Yeah, often they would not come out before or after. They'd come out at the exact same time. There is another case of that, but not exactly this time. Oh, very good. Well, if you've listened to the show before, you know what happens. I say something, Dave corrects me. So this is if you're if you're playing this if you're playing the completely Beatles drinking game, uh, take a drink now. This is the first correction of what I've gotten wrong. And by the way, don't drive after this show if you're going to be doing that. Because oh boy. Oh, I wasn't saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that's true. There was a simultaneous, but there was also the singles we'll be covering. Or the single we'll be covering, which is Paperback Writer okay. and Rain, which we'll be doing first because it came out first. So we'll do some chronology. But before we do that, let's just say that today we're going to be covering the my favorite Beatles album, which is Revolver. Okay. Um, and I think a lot of people's favorite Beatles well, album. Well, that uh, that reminds me of a personal story, if I can get personal. Oh, David, sure. For a second. Please. Uh, I, I dated a, a, a woman once. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. Good planning. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and here's what she said. She was a little bit crazy, let's say. This was when I was dating a variety of crazy women. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, on our first date, so you're in your 20s. <laughs> Pretty. Uh, okay. It was maybe a little earlier than that, but okay. yeah, fair enough. Uh, but she said to me, listen, before we go out, there's two things you need to know about me. One, I am deathly afraid of clowns, and I am not joking. I will not go to a McDonald's. I, if I see a clown, I will scream, and I've got to let you know that. And number two, Revolver is the greatest Beatles album of all time, <laughs> and I will hear no argument. You might think it's funny to like, oh, I like Sgt. Pepper. Don't. Don't mess around. <laughs> Because the because Revolver is the greatest Beatles album of all, and then after that things kind of went downhill. <laughs> I think well, I think I might have taken her to the circus. <laughs> I don't. Didn't go well. I don't want to make it personal, or I should say, I do want to make it personal. I don't want to make it. You know, I I can say it's my favorite album. Okay. Because I know everyone has How their do you feel own about clowns. Clowns are fine. Okay, I like clowns good. actually. I think they're. That's funny. where you're different from her. All right, we I can still get along. So, <laughs> so before we go go to the album, let's just once again. I just want to. Kind of give like the background to the album so that we kind of know. Set the stage. Yeah, so we know what the Beatles uh, were, were the doing table. at the time. Here we go. go. Because this, what happened was at the beginning of 1966, well, it kind of starts before that, but Brian Epstein had, you know, had kind of, he wanted to make another film. He wanted another Beatles movie. So when Help was nearing the end of its production, they already started to kind of gear up for a new Beatles movie. They, they had uh, bought the rights to a book called A Talent for Loving, which was written by Richard Condon, who uh, wrote The Manchurian Candidate. And what was the book about? The Manchurian Candidate. No, I do Talent, know the Manchurian. Talent for Loving was a book set in the uh, the mid uh, like the it's a was a western. Oh, that's, and the idea, that's an odd. Yeah, choice. it was okay. an odd choice, and the idea was the Beatles would be the sort of transplanted Liverpudlians who were in the old west, and it's not a terrible idea, I think. And actually, it was made into a film, and now I. I sh- you know I should really if I'm gonna bring these up I should really write down the the facts but it was made into no one, a film. No one thinks you're not bringing enough facts to the <laughs> table. Don't worry if you think your your facts light you're incorrect. I can tell you it was made in 1969, but I can't tell yeah. you who starred in it. Everyone's listening to this it, is by the internet. They can check that. It out. might have been Richard Widmark, but I don't want to. The, wanna the swear Beatles to in it. a Western does sound like a very interesting idea. It does sound like an interesting idea, and I think we can talk more about it when we because. We haven't really talked about it very much, but when we finish all the albums, we have been sort of talking about doing a kind of movie podcast. This is sort of do kind of a general discussion of the films. Right. We will not discuss the cartoon. Sure, we won't discuss the cartoon. Maybe very briefly. It'll come up in the all submarine discussion, I think. But but I think, you know, 
rather than us go into like what a talent for loving is, this this suffice to say that when it came down to the Beatles, said no to the script. All right. And so they said no to the movie, mm-hmm. and that gave them three months with nothing to do, because Brian Epstein had taken three months out of their schedule for the film, and when they said no to it, he had nothing to put in there. So his plans for this super busy year of you know the movie and then more touring and recording two albums and everything else just went to nothing and in fact pretty much the two album plan went out the window as well they made they don't win one album in 1966 which was revolver and i think i'm not too sure about the singles but as far as like there are four four singles a year that also went out the window as well okay. so so um so what that meant was the beatles had all this spare time to kind of pursue their own interests so you know, Paul was was in a relationship with Jane Asher, and he started to explore the kind of art scene, the classical music scene of of London. He started kind of broadening his artistic horizon. Horizons, it's a you know. good city to do that in. So yeah, so this young boy who you know went from this provincial northern town in Liverpool came to London and began to explore, you know, not just classical music but also the kind of modern classical music Berlioz and going to see you know the kind of new happenings uh, listening to Stockhausen all these kind of new things that were happening or not necessarily new but you know recent things that were happening that he started to kind of take in right and then George you know kind of pursued his interest in in Indian music and Indian culture you can really tell that and you can really tell that in the album sure and then um, John kind of went his own way into uh, sort of the LSD subculture you know, that didn't really exist in England, but he kind of created his own homemade acid subculture. Okay. Um, so the other thing is that all of like, then Paul bought a, ho- bought a house as well. He bought a home in St. John's Wood, which was where the EMI studios were that they recorded at. So, so now they all had homes. Ringo Starr also bought one. Paul bought one. And then George and John had already bought their homes in, in Weybridge the, right. a couple of years before. And both John and George had, had at that time sort of they put home studios into their into their houses, so they they you know took a room, you know knocked a wall out or whatever, and then put in had all these Brunel uh, tape recorders that they put into these studios, as well as install their instruments and things like that. And John even went so far as to buy a Mellotron, which is a pretty yeah. What is that? Well, a Mellotron it's kind of a um, sounds like a made up word. A primitive sampler. Okay, is what you call it. All right. And I think the idea of the mellow was maybe it was supposed to be like mellow sounds. Because what it was, was it's kind of an interesting machine. And you've heard it, you just don't know it. Like if you've listened to a Yes song or heard, <laughs> you know, in the court of the Crimson King by King Crimson, All you've right. heard a Mellotron. But because uh, what, it, what it was, it was a keyboard instrument. And it, it, each time you press a key, it would activate a tape that had a s- sampled sounds in it. So it might be like flute sounds. Oh, okay. Or it might be, um, it might be... Uh, like string or brass sounds, or it could even be like a whole musical, musical, um, like passage. Now, would the would the machine? Sorry, we're going getting into mm. this discussion, but I'm not going to apologize. It's interesting. Sure. Uh, so you press the key; it yeah. plays the tape. Uh, you take uh, it, once it's played. It does it rewind it so you can play it, it was, again. They were looped. Oh, they were so looped. It was so, always, okay. And you could only and they're only ten second loops, so it, you couldn't. You know, if you held your finger so down was, for yeah, longer than like ten seconds, it would stop well, playing. That's... So yeah, it was it was. That's kind of fascinating. Yeah, and so you could play like a whole kind of flute part. So like, let's go ahead of ourselves, but the opening to Sgt. Pepper, the that that kind of flute sound that's played, that is a Mellotron. Oh, wow. All right. So yeah. So at that time, they hadn't incorporated into their songs, but but John had it. And if you listen to, or if, if you believe Paul McCartney, who says that he composed part of the music for A Day in the Life. Well, you're saying... No, not, sorry, I'm, not A Day in the Life, for um, In My Life. I'm wearing a shirt saying, I believe Paul. Okay. So you know I do. Yes, okay, good, thank you. He says that he composed... 
it, part of the the music for in my life at the Mellotron at John's. So you know it was it was used. It just wasn't. I guess because it was a big giant thing. <laughs> It was as big as the, like a Hammond organ. But everything was big back then. Yeah, everything was big back then, but this yeah. is really big. A calculator took up two two homes, full and homes. It, it will amuse you. And, and actually, like if you bought it today, like what he paid for it would be the equivalent of $16,000 today. So it was like a big purchase for him to buy. I don't know when people think of the Beatles, they think, wow, they're so wealthy. But most of their wealth was tied up in various things because if they got all their money, all, the, all their money would have just gone to tax. So you know, so it was a big purchase. Which also sounds like you're uh, you're uh, hinting at what comes mm, up in the album itself sure, as well. Sure. I think like, but I can understand like if you're going to spend money on something and you're the Beatles, you're going to spend it on something musical. Yeah. I mean that's and by the way, even if you're spending a lot on tax, you can write that off. You're the Beatles. <laughs> I guess you so. bought a expensive musical instrument. Sure. Write that off your tax. I don't know. I, I'm not a I'm not a, an accountant, so I won't. Okay, I'm gonna I'm uh, gonna bet that you, that you could. I'll I'll bow to your knowledge as a chartered accountant. <laughs> um. So. So now they had these studios and, you know, what they did mostly in the studios was goof around, which is what you like to do with tape recorders, right? When you get a tape recorder, the first thing you do is like, what happens if I do this? What happens if I press this key down? Not all the way. What does it do to the tape? What, you know, and so you, and so these home studios became kind of ex- experimental playgrounds. Right. For a, them. a safe place yeah. to, to try some stuff out. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that kind of led to what I would call the unspoken mandate of Revolver, which was to be different, to sound different. So everything to to create new sounds, to explore new instrumentation as much as possible. And I know Revolver, Rubber Soul had a bit of that, but a Revolver was like a super, you know huge step up, a big stride. All right, not just a step, but a stride forward. I, I, I found Revolver to have a running theme through it that well, I'll get to when we get to the actual album itself. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you know, yeah, okay. And now we've talked about it before, but the Beatles couldn't understand why American records sounded so much better, like than British ones, especially particularly the bass. And um, like, if you listen to the early Beatles albums, if you listen to the actual records, you can barely hear the bass and the bass drum on those albums. It's improved on the newer, you know, CDs and stuff like that. They do bring it out a lot more. But if you listen to an old record from that time period, it's very, it's they're mixed so low in the mix, it's not even hmm. funny. And because, and it's understandable, EMI were scared of loud bass sounds because what could happen was you could press a million records send them out in the marketplace, and then everyone's styluses are jumping on their records. Right. And you mentioned a, this before, that giant, they, they yeah. were very sensitive. They just yeah. skip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. Yeah, so that could... Now, now what happens, though, when um, when an American album plays on a British stereo? Uh, or, or, or it, didn't, it didn't... It didn't skip. It didn't skip. I why, mean, well, why would... Uh, it's called corporate paranoia, which is, it could cost us money. Not, it, you know, it will cost us money, oh, but okay. it could cost us money, right? So... But this must have happened at a certain point in the past. Someone had complained, and that's the well, reason. It's, it's possible. It's possible. But you know, when they're doing the when they're doing the cutting of the disc in the studio, which, which is when they actually make an impression of the album, in, so that the records can be pressed from it. Right. You know, they're using a stylus. You'd think it would jump at that point. Like you think that in in that time, it's possible that it's a heavier, heavy, you know, more heavy duty stylus. And they're more worried about kids in their little tape machine, you know, little portable record players rather right. than people with big hi fi systems. I don't know. You I'm know just what, saying what what they're worried about. You know what you do. And again, I was a, I was a kid in the era of the record players. You take a couple of quarters. Well, you'd have quarters. Maybe you have some pennies, and you put the pennies on it, mm-hmm. and that weighs it down. And then you don't yeah. have that problem. Yeah. If you do have a, uh, yeah, it's yeah. flat enough. Solve that problem uh, simply, and let's <laughs> and uh, can, let's get some bass. You can also have the joy of watching the vinyl peel up from your record <laughs> as the needle digs through it. Um, and in the music in the music weeklies in in. Uh, England at that time, there were even reports that the Beatles were going to go to Memphis, Tennessee to record 
And so John Martin, or George Martin was going to go with them. Mm-hmm. And they were going to go to these uh, studios and record albums in the States. And they didn't happen, obviously. They didn't leave. We're, you know what I'm, I'm hearing here is a lot of uh, parallel worlds that would be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Like the Beatles do a Western film. Sure. Beatles go to Memphis. What's their yeah. Memphis album? Beatles like? at Stax. That'd mm-hmm. be interesting. Beatles at Sun Records. Mm-hmm. That'd be an interesting sound. But they didn't. They, they stayed. And what's funny is um, you, there's the book The Lives of John Lennon by Albert Goldman. It's kind of infamous it's not most a t- Goldman books are infamous. Kind of infamous. Yeah. But um, and he says in there that the Beatles were were idiots. Basically, he says they're they're idiots to stay in England and record at at St John's Wood Studios, later to be known as Abbey Road Studios. That they're idiots to record there, and they should have just got, you know done what the Rolling Stones did, go to L.A. and record there, where they could have got you know the same effects. With, and half as much with half as much trouble yeah. as they took in, in England. Well, they're idiots, but and maybe if that had happened, maybe the Beatles would have been successful, <laughs> and maybe people would still be talking about them to this day. Well, what a bunch of idiots! <laughs> well, I think he misses the point. What well, you know? When is it? Albert, a, wait a second. Albert Goldman misses the point. Yeah, I know it's hard to believe. All right, go continue with this weird uh, thing you're saying. I know he even said. Uh, Ringo Starr played uh, drums like a bricklayer. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah that's great. But anyway, okay. <laughs> um, once again, it's a real shame that band didn't take off. Well, what's the, you know, what do you think about? At, let's just call it Abbey Road Studios. That wasn't the name at the time. They right. changed it later but on. It, but it's clear for okay. yeah, yeah. The Abbey Road was it was home to the Beatles. It was a comfortable place. If they'd gone to L.A. and worked with George Martin or worked under the direction of Dave Hasinger or something like that, like the Rolling Stones, it would have been kind of intimidating for them. They'd go from this place they're really comfortable in with its little tea ladies and its you know men in white coats and stuff like that to this whole new place where they wouldn't feel quite as at home. And it'd be hard to make outlandish requests because you don't know these people. So you're I, a little bit. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure they would have done fine. You know, they would have worked around it, but it would have been a very different situation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's no way. And. It is that kind of British eccentricity, that kind of, you know, let's get on with it, you know, element that makes the Beatles, makes Abbey Road for the Beatles what it is. I mean, it's the fact that, you know, that in a way it's the limitations that make creativity sometimes, you know, not just not having everything at your at your fingertips, but sometimes that you have to struggle or that you have to kind of work around you don't it. want too much freedom yeah. in, in creativity it's like it's not a running theme uh, through the show has been uh, yeah has been limitations have helped mm. like oh we only have how many weeks to do this mm. uh and then also and then you make a mistake ah uh, but then that's the title of your album and becomes your biggest hit there you go you know so mistakes and limitations there you go so and then obviously i think one of the key things about um abby about abby road would be george martin and the engineers that he worked with, Ken Scott and jo- and Jeff Emmerich at this time, you know, who created this incredible sound world for the Beatles, you know, just b- by their skill and their imagination, which, you know, they brought as much imagination to what the Beatles did as the Beatles brought to what well, they did. Well, I mean, imagination them. inspires imagination. You see you see the people in front of you doing that. It's 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 harder to just go, well, yeah. I'm just going to do the basics. And, you know, if you've got any creativity in your soul at all. Yeah, and I mean... And what I think is, it is a really interesting quote uh, from Tommy James, who was in Tommy James and the Shondells. You know, they did like Moni Moni mm-hmm. and, and Boney Boney. Boney Moni, I think, actually. And, and Crimson, gonna, Crimson and Clover. Only, oh, I, I was going to go, Moni if they Moni only did rhyming songs. <laughs> it had Oni in the name. Yeah, have you? Moni yeah. Moni, Coney Coney, their tribute to Coney Island. Yeah. Loney <laughs> Loney, let me some money. <laughs> they, uh, but he talks about, at the time, like American studios would tear the studio apart, trying to recreate the drum sound that the Beatles had. You know, because they couldn't figure out how they did it, you know, and so they would be like, make this. And what he said was, I think, really interesting, which is he said, what they did 
everything they did became state of the art. So it didn't matter that they were working in kind of backwards conditions. What they brought to it became state of the art. So it didn't yeah. it didn't matter that studios in the states had eight track recorders two years before they finally brought one over for Abbey Road. It's the fact that the Beatles, you know, had to link two four tracks together to create eight, an eight tracks setup, you know, and created the possibility of phasing, which created a whole different world, you know. So it's those sort of accidents, and you know, doesn't it seem odd how? far apart the countries were back then yeah like nowadays you think like if you're a rich rock star i know they weren't super rich but they were okay yeah but like you're a rock star they're rich uh, enough okay fair enough and you're in and you're in london i'm gonna go to america hey how about let's go tonight done all right now we're there the next day look around go home that night there no big deal but then it felt like a world you're right it did feel like a long way away and even that idea probably wouldn't occur to them no you know because not just because of the times but even just their background the idea of these boys who grew up you know in comparative poverty you know to suddenly just on on a whim fly across the yeah. ocean to do something you would never think of that that's crazy but um okay the other important thing is that there were some like key changes that happened around this time and we kind of mentioned it last last show that norman smith left to become a producer now what was he doing uh, he was the engineer okay so it was his responsibility to set up the mics to you know mic the they say mic the strings when they did it yesterday to um figure out how to mic paul's bass amp and you know and stuff like that and you know he was he was very competent he was a very good engineer and i mean you can hear how the sound improved over time from when they started to when his last album which was uh, rubber soul you know how good the sound was by that point you know and that's partly Norman Smith, partly the people that he worked with, you know. So, um, so he left, and this uh, this young man named Jeff Emmerich was promoted, and he's kind of promoted from nowhere. He was he did work for a while as as a Norman Smith assistant, but he was also like a disc cutter. He did a lot of stuff around EMI Studios, and next thing you know, he's like brought into an office and said, "Do you want to work with the Beatles?" And you know, after he recovered from falling over, mm-hmm. he said, "You know, of course I'd love to." And what's and he brought like a because he was young. He didn't really have any ideas of what what to do or what you shouldn't do, uh, and so limitations. he just, yeah Let's he just see brought where this in goes. that's right he just brought in this kind of unlimited idea of you know painting in the studio and and you know so he, it's you know so he's key like the changes he brought are really key so I mean he brought things in like close miking the instruments damping the drums which is like nowadays is standard procedure um, the use of limiters and compressors for the instruments like that's all from him. You know, he brought all those kind of ideas in when he came. And maybe there are ideas he had in the back of his mind that he wanted to try when he had an opportunity. And here it was, a band who wanted change, who wanted to be different, who wanted new sounds. Go to it, Jeff. Well, this is something I like hearing about. Like, you never hear about the team. Yeah. Of course, you hear George Martin. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're going to hear that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the image put out is just these four guys. Yeah. And uh, they had some great ideas. And there you go. And here's (laughs) the music. And it's done. Yeah. And, uh, And that does not help someone starting a band today no to think because you think it's this magical process and it's like no no there's a lot of steps a lot of mistakes a lot of of limitations and there was a team behind Mm. behind them as well that was making this all happen yeah so the other thing you know so the Beatles are bringing all the innovation and bringing all this imagination to the studio so and you're right it's not only you know sparking like the engineers and the producers like George Martin but also the the 
the kind of the technicians and stuff, the people who are working behind the scenes are also inspired. They're like, okay, well, these guys need things and I can, I can figure stuff out for them. And you feel like you're part of something mm-hmm. and part of something that matters. And I think that's the biggest thing to, you know, almost anybody is uh, if you want to, if you want to get someone to do a lot of work on a project, uh, relevance, make them feel relevant. Yeah, and, yeah. and if you feel like you're creating if something, if you feel like you're in a team yeah. and that you're appreciated part of that, and then what you're member, doing is having an impact mm-hmm. in some way, then uh, you'll be able to get everything out of everyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so now up to up to Revolver, every Beatles album had what was called double tracking on it. Which is... And that was a process where, say, Paul would sing his vo- his vocals mm-hmm. to uh, I Saw Her Standing There. And then they... I guess it was with... You know, maybe I'm wrong on those ones, but let's talk about ones that are on the four track. Let's say from Hard Day's Night On. So Paul would sing his, his uh, say, Can't Buy Me Love. Then he had to overdub a new vocal track on top of that vocal track that was almost exactly the same as his first, as his first vocal track. So he does another take, he double tracks it. Right. And what it does was it thicken the sound. So instead of having one voice singing it, it had two voices singing it almost exactly in unison, but just kind of slightly off because you can never exactly match your voice. But it was a really long and, and, and onerous process. And, and particularly John Lennon hated it because you had to be spot on. You couldn't, you know, improvise. Yeah, creativity the second time. goes out the window. Yeah, you just it's had to just like technical. mechanically. Yeah, and so you know, it's been you know four hours singing and singing over and over again. Ugh, okay. And so there was a the head um, this guy named uh, Ken um, this guy named Ken Townsend at at the studios, and he you know watched this one night. He watched this you know Paul. I was actually watching Paul McCartney do it. He said, "There's got to be a better way to do this." And at the same time as they were. Um, when they started doing Revolver, they did something called very speeding, which was they would speed up or slow down the tracks. And so on the tape record, on the tape decks, they had these um, dials that would let them to, how would you say it, to change their frequency. So it's speed up or slow down the recorders. And what Townsend realized was, is if you had two that were linked together, so if you, um, so what you do is, is uh, now I just got to remember how you do it now. All right. No, that's fine. So you take, the recorded signal from from the playback. So, say you're recording into a machine, that signal runs into another recorder, and it takes that signal and and doubles it, and then puts it back into that original signal. And then you can, by using the changing the speed slightly, you can speed up or slow down that signal. So it's instead of instead of being exactly overlapping, they they move apart a little bit. So you can imagine like a negative. On top of another negative, if you move them away from each other and you create that slight blurring of the edges because mm-hmm. you have two negatives, you do that with the vocals. So even though it's the exact same signal, the exact same vocals going through, if you change the one, slow it down a little bit, you can change. So you're not slowing down the vocals itself, yep. but you're just slowing down the... Now, what does, what does that uh, do to the sound itself? It thickens it up. Okay. So you now have like automatic double tracking. And that's actually what it became called, ADT. So were the, guys, uh, were the guys in favor of that because uh, if nothing else, they didn't have to do that exactly. tedious process. It had that thing, yeah. Lennon became quite famous for saying, you know, well, it's kind of a, it's kind of a strange story, but um, Lennon wanted to understand how it worked. And so George Martin knew he would never understand it. And so what he did was he dis- used a bunch of nonsense words and said, you know, well, da 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 we'll flange it. Something like that. And so then, so it became known as Ken's Flanger, mm-hmm. Otis Flanging. Right. And the Beatles would say, Otis, you know, Lennon would just, after he's finished, say, just, well, flange it, chaps. And then he could, you know, he could go. And but at, at what also point became, did he find out that the flange did not uh, exist? Oh, I don't know. If ever. Okay. I don't think it's something that really concerned Lennon. <laughs> okay. He was I would just like to see what happened that day. <laughs> I think he's one of those people that had trouble opening a tin can. 
you know what I mean? Like he's an incredibly talented musician, you know, absolutely fantastic creative person, but right. put into a situation where he was required to use his manual skills, he would, he would have been lost. And so I think just that kind of stuff was to him just magic, you know, and not worth worrying about. Yeah. Don't ask you know. the wizards how you don't do it. Don't ask the wizards how you do it. You don't want to know. The other thing I thought was interesting was that Revolver was the first time they used headphones for recording. Before that time, when they were overdubbing, they would just play the track on speakers in the studio and they'd play along with it or sing along with it. Wouldn't the microphone pick that up? Yeah, and so there was leakage between tracks. Okay. And so in Revolver, they they started using headphones to to, uh, so they could listen to what they're doing and, and just play it. Before that, they didn't. Were headphones available before then, and they just decided I guess not so. to use them? Yeah, I guess so. I, I didn't even know if it was a technique. They might have might have been one of their might have been something they brought in, or wow, maybe it's something from the states. Okay, that came over just as a thing. By and the way, if anyone out there knows that, if the, <laughs> any, any <laughs> like here, here's the thing, uh, we have a we have a message board at sneakydragon.com, and if there's anything that we miss miss out on, or you go, oh no no no, this is what it was. Please uh, post on there and let us know because uh, we actually do enjoy being corrected. Yes. We're fine with that. I am fine with that. Yes. Yes. It takes me about an hour or two to get over it, and then I'm fine with it. And if you post a correction, take two drinks. That's the other <laughs> drinking game. Uh, treat yourself. Have them on us. Have them on us. So last big change of the time. I mentioned it. Paul McCartney bought a house near the studios. Right. That meant that before everyone else came into work, Paul would be there uh-huh. putting his ideas into practice. Oh, he wouldn't be cleaning the place. No, no. Give he'd be there. Waxing. He'd you know have some idea for something that would make it the track better. And the Beatles, other Beatles would come in and it was already done. Paul had done no guitar solo. Okay. You know, and it was just a fait accompli. Now, Paul, did uh, the other Beatles uh, no. like that? Go, oh, that's nice. Thanks, Paul, for uh, doing no, that. It did It did lead to uh, some friction. But I mean, the thing, the other thing to think about is that John Lennon was in the, was kind of, he was starting to take acid every day. Mm-hmm. Every day of his life, he was tripping on acid. So he was withdrawing from life and from the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Someone had to step in. I mean, before that time, he was sort of the de facto leader of the band. You know, it might have been, you know, really kind of even between them but because of the history of the band lennon was seen as the leader and by this point he was kind of withdrawing into now, himself now when lennon was was doing this uh how influential was uh was was acid influential on anyone because it feels like you know george is doing the sitar stuff and maybe it just because sitar sounds so acidy yeah you know was was george as well it wasn't knowing that john was doing this of course it wouldn't have been okay well how about uh, how about the pot that we've been talking about earlier wouldn't that have been was, talked about okay that wasn't talked about yeah but what we know now from mm. past interviews uh was there was there a lot of drug use uh with the other three at this at this point or George, Ringo, and John had all taken acid. Paul had not. Paul didn't take acid until 1967. Okay. Because he was kind of afraid of it. And I think he's right to be afraid of it. And it, is, mm-hmm. it, is a kind of, it has a, an element of threat to Absolutely, to yeah, yeah. The whole idea of ego loss is, you know, has had bad effects. So there we go. Those are That's kind of the background background to it. Okay. And so, yeah, the Beatles created a revolver. All right, there is our context. There's a context. The table is laid. Do you know what the original name was of it was supposed to be Abracadabra? This was better. Well, it was. They found out that Abracadabra had already been used, and so then they had to start looking for their names. So there was one name I like, which was uh, John Lennon's was uh, Four Sides of the Eternal Triangle, which I think is a, a fun name. Okay. And then uh, Ringo's suggestion was After Geography, because the okay. Rolling Stones had just put out an album called Aftermath. So, which I like that one as well. That is my favorite of the bunch. And then another one was. And then, like the uh, the uh, the Rolling Stones did the Let It Bleed, you know, a little riff on the Let It mm-hmm, Be. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're not above uh, back and forth. Yeah. And um, then uh, another one was um, Beatles on Safari, which is kind of <laughs> terrible because it's such a throwback to like 
64 or something you know it's kind of okay all i want to see about that is the album cover yeah <laughs> all then the pith and then, helmets and then the other you've other had one. me one thing you have me thinking of them in cowboy hats mm-hmm. and i love that mm-hmm. now i'm thinking of them on an elephant in the pith helmets <laughs> yeah and i also enjoy that maybe i maybe i just need some paper dolls to dress up and then the other I'm sure there were beatles paper dolls oh yeah yeah for sure there would have been the other name was uh which is kind of close to revolver was magic circles because mm-hmm. that's like a record kind of yeah. sound too and then okay. finally they settled on revolver now which... why revolver because even they... though we're not at revolver yet we're going to be doing the singles first but that, that they was... like the punning title i think oh because it's revolving yeah it's revolving never even thought of that and then you know it has connotations of the of a gun and also of of, a, of the record itself well i mean i said on rubber soul that i thought mm-hmm. that was their their only pun no, title revolver but it looks like revolver yeah. for yeah. sure revolver. number two on that um okay so then and one last thing the album cover was designed by their a friend of theirs, Klaus Wurman, who they met in Hamburg when they were playing in Hamburg. He's actually the one who kind of discovered them, of uh, the kind of German student, the Exes, because he got in a fight with uh, Astrid Kircher, and he kind of stomped off into the night and sort of ended up at the this uh, club and uh, saw the Beatles playing, and then he brought the other ones there to see them. And so, so yeah, he was working as a graphic artist at that time in London, and so the Beatles got him to design that cover. And... And so he did it partly pen and ink, a drawing he did himself. And then he took some photos and stuff from the Beatles, you know, kind of leftover photos, and he used them as into a collage. And so some of them were Robert Whitaker's photos, the mm-hmm. guy who did the butcher sleeve, the kind of famous butcher sleeve cover. And I was going to say, this was Robert Freeman's last time with the Beatles. He did Rubber Soul, and that was the last time. We were, no, because I was looking at the collage, and there are Robert Freeman shots in there. Uh-huh. So he's still involved in, in the covers. A little bit there still. And Verman got 40 pounds for his work. Okay. Did he get to keep the artwork? I don't know. Yes, they got a Grammy for it. Oh, did he? Yeah. Okay. You got a wait. They had album cover art uh, gets a Grammy. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Is that a current thing as well? Yeah, still. It's really? just not done during the show, but yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Packaging and stuff still gets Grammys. I had no idea. Uh, yeah, just wondering what happened to the original art of that. If it ever went uh, up on display anywhere. Or, uh... Yeah, it would be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did a fantastic um, drawing for the Beatles. Might have been for anthology. In Mojo Magazine, he did this fantastic pen and ink drawing of the Beatles. Because um, when um, in Mojo, when they we do... apologize by the way for all sirens going by, <laughs> but the city we live in cares about people who are hurt, and that takes priority over our little podcast. So even though I understand it's annoying to you, someone's fire is about to be put out, <laughs> and uh, that that was a fire truck too. There we there we go. Um, and it, as we know in Norwegian wood, you know, some of the Beatles songs are pro arson. We are not. Yeah. Hooray for fire trucks. Please continue. I was just gonna say. So yeah. So in Mo- Mojo, they always kind of like commission a full page art for for like a big for like their big album of the month. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, they got Furman to do. It. It's a beautiful piece. Actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll maybe we can put up a, a link to that or something sure, on our maybe, website. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. I say it. I say that to the person who would have to do that. It's not work for me. So why don't okay. we uh, do that? That's all the background, and that's all the time we have for the show. That's today. all the time we have so for the show. Sorry, sorry about that. And uh, moving on. No, now we're <laughs> getting in again. Table is set. We're about to serve. First of all, let's do a couple of amuse uh, amuse bouche, which is a uh, we'll do a single for you. We'll do the single uh, paperback writer, which was released before uh, the album. It was released on the 10th of June. Mm-hmm. Actually, weirdly, it was released ahead of time in the States. It was released the 30th of May in North America. And how did it go over? Well, actually, it was not one of the Beatles' most successful singles. It's an odd little song. It's an odd little song. It's uh, one, of, one of my favorite songs by them, mm-hmm. but... Uh, but yeah, it is an odd, it is an odd song, and it's. I think people kind of were like, "Isn't this just uh, Day Tripper again?" 
Because it does kind of have that similar riff sound to it. Except Day, Day Tripper sort of seems to be more about. So, well, okay. Now let's talk about what the song is about. Mm-hmm. Like just on the just on the surface, it seems to be about a frustrated artist who just wants to get their thing made. Now, is there symbolism I am completely missing? Because I did on Day Tripper, I didn't understand that Day Tripper was really about kind of just being a weekend hippie. Yeah. You know, and uh, not fully committing to you know things. Now, now Paperback Writer seems pretty straightforward. Is there something I'm missing here? Well, well, I would say the one thing that you, I mean, I think you're right in a way, but also I think it's kind of talking about the sort of new up and coming artists that were kind of moving in the scene of that time in England. Mm-hmm. So you had people coming from the provinces and people coming from working class backgrounds who were kind of infiltrating the art scene, infiltrating broadcasting, becoming writers, becoming, you know, recording artists. And, you know, so it was a, that element of it, I think, is, is in there too. But mostly, I think because the Beatles weren't from London. They weren't all that interested in London. Mm-hmm. You know, it was an f- interesting place, but it wasn't a place that had much meaning for them, say, compared to, compared to Ray Davies of the Kinks, whose every song is imbued with London. You know, London is you know, just soaked into all his songs because he lived there. He grew up there. He grew up in Muswell Hill. He grew up in the London East End. So there's all these landmarks and things that are meaningful to him about London. The Beatles were just visitors who came and were, you know, crashing there. You know, and just kind of drove in from their houses in the suburbs, drove into town, recorded at a studio, and then were limited out again in their Rolls Royces, you know. And so, you know, for them, it was not, you know, there's less of interest to London. So this kind of song kind of starts off about this sort of thing, and then it kind of quickly dis- descends into, I don't know call it descends, but it quickly becomes wordplay and kind of silliness. Yeah, it becomes you know? cleverness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, now, now, a paperback writer... Would that that be different than a hardcover? Like what, like when I hear paperback writer, I think it says again in the in the if it was the states, mm-hmm. that's like someone writing your uh, kind of trashy mystery novels. Yeah, so you're not your highfalutin books, yeah. but you're a common man. I think that's an element of that too. Okay, yeah, yeah. All right. I mean, I mean, initially when I'm hearing it, I'm thinking like it's it's the feeling of an artist who just wants to be heard, just wants their stuff, and it, you can parallel it to a musician or just like, have you listened to my tape? Have you yeah. listened to my thing? I've got a band. I've got a band, which is the kind of thing I'm sure the Beatles would have been hearing all the time. You've got to listen to my band. You got to listen to my band. I think, and the other thing, I think even more important to the song, outside of any kind of song meaning, is that it was just basically a statement of of where the Beatles were at that moment, mm-hmm. and kind of like a shot across the bow of all the bands that were competing with them at that time. You know, it's kind of like you're here, we're here. You're doing this. Oh my God, we're doing this. Sure, and give you, that. you know, you're nowhere near where we are right now. Just going with a, a another quick personal story. I've got a friend of mine who's in a band and ended up uh, running into Ringo Starr at a little bit of a, sh- a shindig. Okay, and uh, and it got mentioned that he was in a band, and Ringo went, "Oh, do you have a do you have a tape of your band?" And I was like, "Okay, well, this is very sweet of him to say," yeah. and he gives it to him. Oh, let's listen to it. And so they were <laughs> they went over and they listened to it, and Ringo gave him a critique wow. of it. And uh, yeah, this was like about ten years ago. Oh my god! But it was just really sweet. Just going, but he actually really cares about music. Yeah. Even currently, it's like, oh, what's yeah. new? What's happening? And so, yeah, sure. just mentioning a lot of people probably were at this time trying to get them to listen to their bands or know about their bands. And uh, you know what? Ringle will listen to your band. I'm going to make that a guarantee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not making that a guarantee at all. Just a sweet story about Ringo Starr. Yeah. So, obviously, like I said, it was written by Paul. Yeah. Um, you might it have seems heard. very Paul. Yeah, it seems very Paul. And obviously, like I say, it was in the style of Day Tripper. I think if you listen to the central riff of the song, you can kind of see where it came Gee whiz, something terrible is happening out there. But you know what? It's being taken care of <laughs> by, uh, there's an ambulance and it's going to go and it's going to help some people. So so good for them. Uh, they're doing important work. Again, we're just doing the silly podcast. They're doing important work. They take priority. Now, Paul seemed to be the one who would write, well, 
I mean, a s- silly love songs. Like that's the, he would he would write a silly song mm-hmm. for the sake of wordplay and fun. Yeah. Uh, John would write a funny song as well, but it would have a little bit of a dark undertone to it. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I'd agree. I think Paul. It took Paul longer. I mean, he did yesterday, which I think is a pretty potent song. Has a lot of meaning in the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think that's. Uh, like I think a lot of times Paul is perfectly happy writing a pastiche. Right. You know? Yesterday it felt like to me, uh, because we know now that he wrote the music first, yeah. without, you know, the emotion behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, not emotion, but without the lyrics behind it. So yeah. he had to write to the music mm-hmm. he had already written. Mm-hmm. He was forced almost to write a song like yeah. that. Yeah. To the music he had already created. Mm-hmm. Which is a little bit of a different situation than coming up with it at the same time. Yeah, and even having to find a word that fit the song. That's right. So yesterday, you know, was a word of many that they kept trying to You gotta put, find a three syllable this, yeah, poignant worked, word. Yeah. Yeah. That worked in the song. And uh, sometimes the song writes not itself, but the song forces its way in. There's a thing that songwriters like to try to do, which is to write a one note song. It's very hard to do, uh-huh. but everyone tries it. Uh, and I don't know where it comes from. Long Tall Sally, for instance, is basically a one-note song. It's a song sung and played around one note. It okay. may not necessarily... There might be some up and down on that, but essentially... And so that that's another thing about this song. It's an attempt to write a song based in one... No, I know you're thinking there's more than one note because they're playing a riff and stuff like that. Right. But it's just the chord itself. Gotcha. The chord is the note. So well, around been, that G... They must have been happy with the song Help. Y- yeah. One syllable, one one note. <laughs> oh, it was, that wasn't one, though. If I Needed Someone was another one they tried. Okay. Um, the Word... Another okay. one. And then Tomorrow Never Knows. All songs that are based around, although Paperback Writer uh, fails by moving to a C, but <laughs> they tried it. Yeah, everyone tries it. Elvis Costello tried it. Everyone tries it. I wonder if Albert Goldman shamed them for that, <laughs> for moving to that C. Shame on you. And the th- other thing I think about Paperback Writer is remnants of Rubber Soul in, in the lyrics, for instance. So Rubber Soul, they want to have the kind of jokey songs and the yeah. sort of jokey lyrics in, in, in uh, Paperback Writer. Well, it, this does feel almost like it's a good transition from Rubber Soul, you know mm-hmm. the the this uh, this single, and then getting into getting into Revolver, you know, with the first song Taxman. I it, it does it does feel still like the uh, the humorous elements yeah. of uh, Rubber Soul remain. One of the one significant part of the song is the bass playing, mm-hmm. and the fact that you can hear the bass, like even at the time, this was like the album that uh, or the song that that um, had had like you know people that oh there's bass in this song, like, this actually has <laughs> bass in it. And one thing is Paul replaces bass. He stopped playing the Hofner, you know, the violin style bass that he okay. played. He started playing a Rickenbacker uh, 4001S, which was a more trebly. Sounds impressive. was a more trebly, okay. had more treble and it was just a better action. So he's better able to, to play, like, play like uh, the crazy riffs on it. And then um, they also, other than they did, which I think is kind of weird, was they mic'd his bass with a loudspeaker. So they had it. Oh. Yeah. So they had the bass. That played into a loudspeaker, and then the loudspeaker was mic'd, and then they compressed that sound, and so it gave him this kind of punchier sound to the bass. And the guy, once again, Ken Townsend, who the inventor of the of ADT, he uh, got in trouble from the head of the you know Abbey or the studios for matching impedent impedances incorrectly. So yes, you get you got in trouble for. So yes, you just wouldn't talk about the fact they did that. The other thing that's interesting about this song, <laughs> we've was, all gotten in trouble in school for matching impedances. It was the first. Incorrectly. It was the first uh, um, record that was mastered with a new process that was called automatic transient overload control or ATOC. Okay. And what that did was it it you could have a punchy bass, right? But it would keep it from it would kind of create a, a, a sort of a compression 
when you're mastering it so that you didn't have to worry as much about uh, stylus skipping. Okay. So yeah, you, they got a better. Even though stylus skipping probably yeah. wasn't a problem. Yeah. So this corrects a problem that was not a problem. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you, England. <laughs> well, well done. Yeah. All right. It made them happier. It, well, that's the thing. It it's a happier. placebo. And uh, makes them happier. That sounds good. All right. And on the, uh, are we good with that? Are we That's flipping one the one more thing? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure you noticed this, but no. did you noticed. By no. the way, anytime David says, "and there's one more thing," <laughs> also take a drink. All right, continue. You notice that the background singing, what the what John and George were singing in the background. Right. I do not off the top of my head. Frere Jacques. Oh, yeah, very nice. That's that's the background of vocals. Is they're singing Frere Jacques, which is kind of fun. All right, so yeah, let's move on to side two. We're going to flip that 45 over. I'm going to take that little middle. No, I won't have to take the middle part out. I'll just put it on. And we're listening now to Rain. Yes, this is um, this was written by Lennon as an attempt to convey uh, the heightened sensory experience of LSD. So like how the how the atmosphere, like how the weather and stuff feels. That's why that song has that kind of weird shiny feeling to wow, it. Wow, I got this one completely wrong. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what I thought it was. Okay. It's, the, it's the whole thing. Like It starts when the rain comes. They run and hide their eyes. Uh, they might as well be dead. When the rain comes, and the rain comes. Mm-hmm. When the sun shines, they slip into the shade and sip their lemonade. It feel it felt like people that aren't experiencing life, that fear everything, well, yeah, that fear that's part all of it. experience. But the, the difference between them is that you have, you have people who are using LSD who are integrated into this into this universe, peacefully integrated into this universe, and then you've got the straights whose materialism is keeping them out of you know they're not enjoying it. They're not enjoying. They're not it. looking directly into the yeah. sun like the uh, brilliant person on LSD is. So yeah, the people the people you know so this kind of new idea of the psychedelic consciousness, you know. So we're talking about like uh, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, mm-hmm. who we'll talk about in a little while a, a lot more. But they created this idea of this psychedelic consciousness. And this is kind of the beginning. This is probably the first song that talks about that idea of the us versus them thing of, you know, you got your hip people who are using drugs and you got your straights who are all caught up in their materialistic lives who are just missing the beauty, man. It's all passing by, man. Yeah. It's all about murder and death. Death, man. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a big part of that whole death, culture. Death pops up a lot. Yeah. With that and kind of thing. just to go completely off the topic, but I always thought it was so unfair, like a song like, which I do love the song Pleasant Valley Sunday by the by the monkeys. Right. I do love the song, but I always feel it's so unfair for these parents who work so hard to give all this stuff to their children so they can enjoy their lives. It only be told that it's a bunch of materialistic crap, you know, <laughs> and that they're all, they're just worried about status symbols and blah, blah, blah. Right. But I'm trying to give you stuff that's good. Oh man, you're just totally wrapped up in status seeking dad. Stupid song. Pleasant the, Sunday. The, now, did you feel that way before you became a dad? No, I didn't. Nope. That's, that's no, the I just, difference. Just enjoy that song. That's right. Just D- felt like Dave my is parents, the establishment. My parents were getting put in their place. Yep. Every so often, uh, Dave will have to shake his fist at these lyrics and go, you young kids, you don't understand. So um, I mentioned very very speeding before. Uh-huh. So this is a song where lot that uses lots of very speeding. So when they recorded the backing track, when they recorded the part, they played it really fast. And then they slowed it down. Right. So it gave it this sort of different feel and kind of gives it that kind of shimmering feel and stuff like that. Meanwhile, Lennon's vocal was recorded slower and then sped up. Oh. Which is so unfair about Beatles Rock Band. Oh, you're going to... Because you are singing, you are singing uh, songs of Beatles Rock Band where guys have had their voices artificially made faster, so it's higher. And your voice is cracking as you're trying to sing along with them. 
so unfair. I will not hear your Beatles rock band bashing. <laughs> I will not. By the way, anyone out there who doesn't know what we're talking about, uh, the uh, rock band video game uh, released uh, a, um, a Beatles uh, mm. game. And you could sing along. You could play drums. You could uh, play fake guitar to the Beatles. And yes, uh, Dave apparently had some difficulty with the vocals. Yeah, some of them And are, has been waiting years yeah. uh, to have a forum to, uh, <laughs> to vent on, on this. I think you still did fine. On it, but yeah. you're right. That was not a fair track on the Beatles rock band. Uh, finally, know, never, finally, someone has stood up. I never and, actually did. Uh, by rain, the way, but... David, I think Defender is way too hard a video game as well. If we're just talking, yeah, video we're games gonna go well. back and pat that. Well, maybe, maybe on a future, maybe on a future episode, we will talk about the Beatles video games. There's been a couple. The other interesting part of this song to me is Ringo's uh, drum part, which I'm sure you noticed because this is like it's basically like a drum solo mm-hmm. played behind, and. Uh, because Emmerich had come and he had like this idea of close miking. So what he did was there was a big giant, I'm sure you've seen the picture of the Beatles wearing this big four necked sweater. They wore it for their yeah. Christmas show in 19, in their the 65 Christmas show. And so he, it was lying around the studio. So Emmerich took it and bundled it up and shoved it into the bass drum. Then he basically put the mic into it. And then, and he had one other mic above. So he just had two mics miking Ringo's drums because of the, because there wasn't that many inputs on the, on the mixer because it was just a four track. So, um, so he had the two mics, but it gave him, it just gave this incredibly, uh, like, you, you know, it's really close mic, but then it's compressed. So you get this really punchy sound. It really changed the sound of Ringo's drums. Mm. And it maybe even inspired him when he heard it back. You know, he's like, wow, this is amazing. And just really inspired him to, to, to play that part because it's a fantastic part. And then Paul's bass part. Speaking of the Rickenbacker with its better action, I mean, his bass part is so amazingly melodic. It's just incredible. There's a, if you go on YouTube, you, if you put in a rain bass, cover mm-hmm. you can there's a guy playing it on a, on a similar uh he's playing on a rickenbacker 4001s as well and you can just, it's amazing to to see the part they just se- separated from the song cool it's, it's fantastic all right check that out all right so are we moving on to the album itself now no there's one more thing that's significant about this song which all is right, the by the way, every, first everyone, time that was one more thing <laughs> You know what you've got to do. You know everybody. Maybe at this People point, are gonna be maybe at this point, get some crackers or a piece of bread, and you gotta you gotta soak that up because you can't be having straight drinks through this whole thing. Um, All right, continue. What's the one more thing? Well, the use of backwards vocals. Yes, which is significant and the, kind of the first time it was it was uh, appeared anyway. Not the first time the Beatles used it in their because we're out of chronology when we're right. But um, but yeah, so both Martin and Lennon have their own stories about how it came to pass. Mm-hmm. Which is that Lennon's is that he came home high, tried to put his tape, he wanted to listen to the song and he put it in backwards and it started playing backwards and he's like, oh, this is fantastic. I had to put this in a song like this. Martin's is more kind of everyday. He's like, I was thinking a backwards part would sound interesting here. And so I found, he took a snippet of John's voice from the start of the song and reversed it and just kind of slid it into place in the in the back of the song. It's possible that that's true. I, it's you know you can't say for sure who who's who. We do know that Lennon's memory was very suspect. You know later in his life he just could not remember the '60s very well because he was there, and so it's hard to know who to believe. For sure there was lots of stuff that was being played backwards already because let's just jump ahead a little bit. They'd already done Tomorrow Never Knows. Okay. So they'd already done their fair share of very speeding, doing things backwards, layering all the kind of stuff like that. So that, you know. It's just one more. It kind of. I'm sure that it grew out of their experiments while they were doing the loops and stuff for that. So yeah. Anyway, that's rain and paperback writer. 
Done. We are done with the single. Mm-hmm. Moving Time on. for the album. All right, we're putting away the uh, the uh, moose bush. We're getting the actual meal here. Let's the go. The summer release came out August 5th in uh, 1966. And yeah, so you uh, went to the record store, you heard. And what's, the other thing is before the album came out, the Beatles released two tracks every couple of weeks before the album came out. And the very last track they, they released was Tomorrow Never Knows. Okay. So everyone kind of got a taste of the album bit by bit before it came out. Yeah. So when it actually did come out, everyone was just like, whoa, this is amazing. And the reason I was going to say that you were kind of right was that simultaneous with the release of the album was the issue of the single Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine came out the same day as the album was released. Oh, okay. So, yeah. All right. Now, uh, how was, uh, how, okay, getting into, getting into a little bit of acid here. Uh, what was the, what was the drug culture like in England at that point? Was acid becoming prominent? Well, if you're talking about any drug culture in England at that time, you're talking about a subculture of people who were not, you know, it's not like nowadays, like in Vancouver, where you're standing in line on a movie, you can smell someone's lit up and is smoking a joint right you know. but if you in go to days, a certain club you went to or if you're with certain friends right you, you know you would know where to go to get drugs it didn't matter what would drugs you know where were. to go to get acid or was like you because knew, john yeah. was i mean i'm just thinking like john was at an elevated yeah level there was where... no acid subculture then of any okay. particular amount so he was really searching on his own you know pot and pills would have been different but yeah in terms of of acid it, it was a re- a real kind of by yourself culture. Okay. But let's talk about that later. Like we'll, well, we can talk the, about that when we reason, get to tomorrow. The reason I, the reason I'm bringing that up now mm-hmm. though is because I think that um, after you get into Eleanor all right I'll tell you, I'll tell you the general structure I sure. see of this album, which is I think of this album as a drug trip. That's what it feels like to okay. me. Like you start off with, and I'm just going to go in the basics and we'll get more specific, yeah. but you start off with tax man. Oh, the problems, you know, real problems that you have. Yeah. Then Eleanor Rigby, depression, loneliness. You're not connected to anything sure. isolated. Sure. But when you start with, uh, I'm only sleeping, you, you get into, I'm floating upstream. <laughs> and then the very last uh, song, yeah. you're floating downstream. Okay. So I think like from, from I'm only sleeping on, we're on a trip. Okay. And then it all wraps up at the end with, well, now we're coming back from the trip. And, you know, if you do, as you say, you then flip the album over. Now we're back to real life again. And we're going to mm. go on the trip again. But that, that's just that's just my general sure. feeling of the of the album. Well, I mean, it is it, it definitely is an acid album. Mm-hmm. Like Rubber Souls and Help or Pod albums. This is the acid album. Right. For sure. if this was this could be a movie mm-hmm. quite easily to me, like the way things are structured in here. What's always fun about this is, you know, it's this acid album produced and engineered. And the effects were all created by people who in no way were involved with well, drugs couldn't. at all. Well, they couldn't. You know, you can't, you can't do <laughs> so like the drug that. culture yeah. and be in the drug culture because yeah. you're never going to get nothing done. The other thing about this album, it seemed like there's a lot of George on here, way more than uh, mm-hmm. than previous uh, yeah. albums. So yeah. was he just more interested in doing in doing writing now? Were they just were, were John and Paul more open to George? Or did they have, were they so desperate for songs? Well, it's... George's songs it's funny, seemed like a good it's idea. It's funny you bring that up because we had a listener, Lane, asked us uh, on the website. He wrote some questions, which... We can answer, I'd like to answer one of them today. He right. answered, asked one question, which is, what was, we know that Paul and George had friction between them. What was John and George's relationship like? His other question was about George Martin. And I'd like to go into that next episode, or next time we talk about the next album, Sgt. Pepper, because I feel like that is sort of George Martin's, kind of his monument uh, to as producer of the Beatles. So we'll talk about George when we do that album, but we can talk a little bit about John and George, because... There's an interesting quote from John Lennon about Taxman, which I found, which is, I remember the day that Harrison, he, but we'll just say Harrison, I remember yeah. the day that Harrison called to ask for help on Taxman, one of his first songs. Not true. I threw in a few one-liners to help the song along because that's what he asked for. 
He came to me because he couldn't go to Paul, because Paul wouldn't have helped him at that period. I didn't want to do it. I just sort of bit my tongue and said, okay. It had been John and Paul for so long. He'd been left out because he hadn't been a songwriter up until then. So, not true. He had a song in the first, the second album. Mm-hmm. He'd contributed some, a really good song to help. He contributed a really great, couple of really good songs to On Rubber Soul. Mm-hmm. So, Lane asked what George's relationship was to John. George's relationship to John was the same relationship he had with Paul, even if there was probably more friction there, which is that they, George was seen as a junior partner in the Beatles. Jo, jo, uh, Ringo was almost like a person who married into the family. Okay. You know, because he came that late. Yeah. George came into the into the Beatles when they were still the Quarrymen. Paul brought him in. Paul knew him, and he and he knew George was a really good guitar player, and they needed a guitar player, and he recommended George. And so George did an audition on a bus on the top of a double double decker bus with with uh, John and Paul, and he impressed them enough that he was you know because he, he could play note for note Chet Atkins songs, and because uh, he learned he. Till his fingers bled, he played his guitar to learn to play those 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 kind of licks and stuff that Chet Atkins did or Carl Perkins did. And but when he came in, he was younger than them, and he came in later than than them, and he was always going to be the junior partner in that relationship. Yeah. It didn't matter what happened. You're the younger brother. You're no the younger brother. No matter how old, you're all exactly in your eighties, right. and it's still baby brother. And yeah. we all live with that in our lives. Yeah. If, we, if we get a job where we are um, a salesperson in the job, but even though we kind of expand our role in the company and we're doing a lot more stuff and we're almost become like a, say we've almost become like an account executive or, you know, we'll always be the salesperson because that's right. what we're hired as. Right. And George had the same thing. His, the perception of him in the band was as the junior partner. And you can hear like Lennon there just dripping with condescension mm-hmm. about, you know, how, having, I didn't want to help him. It was one of his first songs. It wasn't his first song. You know, and it's a really great song. It is a great song. And, and to say that... They're leading the album off with it, yeah. so someone must have liked it. Yeah, and to say that Paul wouldn't help him. You know, I always hate when people say that about Paul McCartney, because Paul McCartney, even if he was competitive within the Beatles, John was too. Mm-hmm. You know, if they were competitive with each other to get their songs on, to be the, the guy who wrote the single, and they were competing with George, they all were competing. All of them were competing with each other. That's the nature of a band. That's the nature he, of any... Even Ringo? I don't think Ringo so much, because like I say, he married into the family, yeah, okay. right? When you were just saying they're all, I want to. There's four I'm just talking about so the, the main kind three. of main okay. songwriters, yeah. Yeah. And um, you interrupted me now. I lost my train of thought. Sorry. So they. Uh, sorry for throwing a fact in. Sorry for throwing a fact in there. <laughs> so um, yeah. So Paul, but Paul was always willing to help. You know, make a track better. You know, it could be any song. Paul would take his time to create a, a fantastic bass riff. Mm-hmm. The solo in Taxman is from, is Paul's. It's not a George solo. Okay. Paul did the solo. And even throws in a little bit of Indian, you know, sounding into it. It's kind of a tip of a hat to George. You know, it's, I don't think there was as much friction or, or as, you know, when you listen to people, of course, they're looking back at it through, through a glass darkly. And the glass darkly is the collapse of Apple at the end of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's hard for John and hard for George to look back at Paul. In a friendly way, because well, of so much, there was so much friction at the so very much, end. There's so much sunshine in the Beatles. You want to have a little shadow, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the shadow becomes darker. Now yeah. let's get to the actual song itself, sure. since we are already talking about it. Yeah. Uh, I do. I like the song a lot, and it is funny. Now is John claiming uh, credit for the funny, funny bits in this? From the, <laughs> uh, he threw in the. Uh, if you take a walk, I'll tax your feet. Yeah, maybe. Is, is that what he? Uh, he didn't really say what hold he, of that one. He didn't really say. He said he okay. gave him a few one-liners, so that might have been him. Because let's face it, John's or George's songs are usually kind of dour. Yeah. They're usually kind of crabby songs that he wrote when he was 
you know this this feels like world. one of their first really mature songs as in like by I say mature i mean a problem only adults have like yeah. if you're a teenager you're oh this taxation is mm-hmm. not a, an issue for you and starting off with a song about eh, taxes are too high well george know? was probably the one beetle that was actually interested in what was happening behind the scenes of the beatles mm-hmm. the other guys who were songwriters and they were making good money because their songs were being covered by their bands and they were getting lots of money in. George and Ringo, not so much. They weren't getting the the singles royalties. They weren't getting the covers right. of their songs and stuff like that. So their money wasn't coming in the way it was for, for Lennon and McCartney. So yeah, George was very interested in what was happening I'm sure with his money. the tax rates were very high then as the well. The tax rate, when, when Harold Wilson's government, the, their, the labor government came in, they created a super tax of 95%. For top for top earners, isn't this amazing that Dave knows this? Like I know that Dave knows all the stuff about the Beatles, and you're all like, "Oh, that's pretty impressive." But now the guy knows tax law, British tax law. <laughs> well, I just know because of relation to song. I don't. No, I'm just saying you're like one of those guys in the detective shows who just like happens to know all the uh, all the facts. Mm-hmm. You know, amazing. Yeah. Well. But no, ninety five percent is yeah, is absolutely ridiculous. That's why there's a line. There's one for you, nineteen for me. Yeah. So that's because ninety. Yeah. Anyway. So um. Yeah. So it's uh. It's it's um, interesting, yeah, because I, I don't know if he was like the best businessman in the Beatles. Like I would kind of give that to Paul, who obviously made a lot of a lot a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But Paul uh, also had more to work with. George, yeah, George more starting was, capital. George was uh, George was was interested in in what was happening because you know he, and I think because he was kind of the very first Beatle to become jaded about being a Beatle. All right. You know, by this point he was, and I I think if George if things had gone a certain way, George would have quit being a Beatle before Sgt. Pepper. You know. And so, particularly if they insisted on continuing touring, I think George definitely would have would have quit the Beatles. Like I, did, he just wasn't that into it anymore. And you know, he wasn't getting his songs weren't being played. He was writing songs, and they were you know getting condescended to by John. And apparently, Paul wouldn't help him. So, you know, it's just it's just still uh, for all of that, he does have more songs in this album yeah. than in any any of yeah. the others. So you know, at least he's uh, stretching his creative legs. Sure, a bit yeah, this. yeah. And I mean, he and it, and it brings a lot to it. And there's um. In the first takes of the song, they said the George, uh, John, and and Paul, their their background was like anybody got a bit of money. They would say. Then they changed that to that Mr. Heath and Mr. Wilson, Mr. Heath being Ted Heath, who is the leader of the Conservatives, and then Harold Wilson, the oh, leader okay. of the yeah. Neat. All right, so uh, a good a good song, good good start, odd start. Once again, sing a song about taxation. Yeah, off your off your. But it's album. a rocking song, and it has that. Great, it is a rocking song, and it has a great countin'. Mm-hmm. So if you kind of look at this as like a new beginning for the Beatles, mm-hmm. the countin', the very first album before I saw her standing there, and now another countin' for Tex Cool. Man. All right, moving on from there to uh, one of my favorite songs, and uh, just a heartbreaker, Eleanor. Really, I like this song. I really. Like I would this put song. you alone in that. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> This is a pretty popular song with people. It is a very popular song because uh, they've sang about loneliness before, mm-hmm. definitely. They've yeah. sang about this topic, but this one just comes at you like a hammer, like a Maxwell silver hammer to the head, frankly. <laughs> and you're right. And it's it's because it's not personal. It's a kind of a, it's about people around us being lonely. You know yeah. what I mean? It's not about a personal loneliness that we could eventually get over. It's like... The, pe- the lonely people around us that we don't see, you know? Yeah. And so it has that kind of that kind of melancholy. Yeah, what about all the other people around yeah. here? Where they come from? Where yeah. they all belong? Yeah. And again, the first time I ever heard this song was in the um, the animated uh, film Yellow Submarine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which does it very, very well. It's super great effect in this song. Right. Yeah. And uh, again, going with the idea that I've got that this is, you know, an acid trip that's about to begin, uh, I feel like the last song was 
the money problems. Okay. Oh, they're so stressful. Yeah. And then that just just genuine loneliness. Personal, the loneliness yeah. of people who exist together and yet never connect. Yeah. These two people who may have had a connection together never connect. Yeah. Why not? Because we don't as in rain, it says they, they just they just stay in their own homes. Sure. They do their own thing. Yeah. But uh but coming up, things will connect. <laughs> things you know, will we'll connect. all get we'll all get together. What's interesting though about about that is it, if how integrated that song feels, like the lyrics and stuff like that. What's funny about it is it was thrown together by four or five different people mm-hmm. working and making suggestions over time. So McCartney woke up one morning and he had this idea for the song and he started working on it. And his original, it was going to be about a woman named Miss Daisy Hawkins. That was his first kind of right. name that he had in it. And then uh, he was working on that. And I guess he was visiting, um, he was visiting Bristol where Jane Asher was performing in a in a play called The Happiest Days of Your Life. And he was and he was there and he saw a sign for a wine and spirit store called Rigby and Evans. And so he thought, Oh Rigby, that's good. And then he took the name Eleanor from Eleanor Braun, who yeah. was in was in help with them. So he put those two together. So that that gave him that. It's a great name. And it is a really good name, yeah. And then originally it was gonna be Father McCartney. And a friend of his and uh Lennon's who had been in the quarryman named Pete Shotton, he said you know, you really shouldn't have it as Father McCartney because people are going to think you're talking about your dad. Like oh. It's kind of weird. Oh, that's true. And so he said, oh, yeah. So then they opened up a phone book and they found the name McKenzie in the phone book and decided on that, Father McKenzie. And then uh, it was Harrison who contributed the line, ah, look at all the lonely people. Well, they were a writing session at John's house. And then Starr was when suggested that um, the piece be darning his socks and writing the words of, of a sermon that no one would hear. That was, that was Ringo's contribution. And then, um, and then the other thing was Shotton was the one who wanted them to come together at the end as, a, as you know, the, the priest doing the sermon for her, for her, for her um, funeral. And Lennon thought that was a dumb idea and was totally against it. And they kind of left it there. But then, you know, just a little bit before they started recording it, McCartney decided, oh, I think that's actually a best way because to have them come together at the end yeah. for the song. And yet not come together. And yet not come together. But what's strange, and here's a strange fact for everyone, right. is that at St. Peter's Church, in in Woolton, where they had the Woolton uh, Church Fete, where uh, or fate, however you want to call it, where um, John and Paul first met, there's a there's a grave marker there to Eleanor Rigby. Oh, so it's weird. So it might have subconsciously been in his mind, and it came out through various connections. Wow, that is interesting. Yeah. Well, something like you were saying, like uh, how this this more than almost any of the other songs we might be talking about today. Is the most collaborative. Yeah. Uh, everyone had a had a peat. Everyone threw something into the stone soup. Yeah. This one. Yeah. And yet the whole song is about people not getting together. Yeah. And living separate lives. And this is the most together song of of uh, all of them. Well, I think. I mean, they don't really talk about it very much, but I think the Beatles did work together a lot like that in mm. this kind of. Also, a, a good idea inspires unit. everyone, and then mm-hmm. everyone starts sparking. Sure. And then you end up with uh, with a song sure. like this. And so. Um, Almost right away, it was decided that it was going to have a string. That's what um, Paul McCartney wanted. And he had been introduced to Vivaldi by, by Jane Asher. Okay. And so that's what he was kind of thinking was, was Vivaldi. But Martin, who, um, George Martin, who did the score, he wanted it to be more strident. He wanted it to be more of a kind of a, well, just a more strident sound. This that more kind of bump, bump sound that the song has. And so he was more inspired by Bernard Herrmann, who did like uh, the theme for Psycho. And uh, yeah, Fahrenheit 451, yeah. and it is very psycho. It has that, true. yeah. And so it's actually a double quartet. It's mm-hmm. it's eight string 
string musicians, but they're all playing together as one quartet. So there's two violins doubling on the same line. There's two violas doubling on the same line. So that's how it was planned. I like the, uh, what I like about it too is if you're doing a song about, you know, depression, sadness, and this kind of thing, you mm-hmm. could really, you, you counter it with the sharpness because you don't often with the, depression just seems like a, uh, yeah. but this is, just aggressively sharp yeah. as well. This is painful depression. This is this is this hits you deep, and uh, it man does it work. Yeah, it does work. And a couple of things I was reading about it. It says um, you know there's a final line where no one was saved, and and I was reading and they're like kind of like well this was the Beatles talking about the the death of God and da 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 that pe- you know I was like. Isn't it more like no one was at the church, so no one heard what he said, so no one was saved? But I don't know. You can take it however well, you want, Well, he also didn't get to her in time. You know, he didn't get to her before she died. So yeah. she was just this person who, you know, didn't get to confess her sins or what have you. That's what... Not really part of Anglican culture, but... Really? Okay, well... Okay. Well, then what... There's no what, final... Uh, who, gets sa- who gets saved in Anglican culture? How do you get saved? Well, I think he, what, they, what they mean in that is that... By the way, how do you know that it's an Anglican uh, priest? Oh, I would just... I guess you're the right. The Church of England? I guess, yeah, you'd assume that okay. the, po- the most popular church of the establishment right could yeah. have been yeah, yeah absolutely all right uh although he, father mckenzie called a priest could have been catholic yeah never know. again being catholic that's what that's uh, what, you that's go what for. always <laughs> when i was a kid they need their last rites my dad was anglican <laughs> though maybe he heard the song differently all right so anything else on uh, eleanor no, is there going. one more thing nope then you don't get to take another drink put down put down <laughs> your drink everybody we're moving along to i'm only sleeping yeah and i would say more candid confessions from lennon about Who? what about his use of acid, about the fact that he's just in this sort of dreamy reverie that was what his life right. had become. Although he was also described as the laziest man in England by the journalist Maureen Cleave, who was a friend of his. Well, it's one of those songs you can take, if you want, and your mom walks in and goes, what's this song about? It's like, it's about a person who's sleepy, doesn't yeah. want to be disturbed. Mm-hmm. And that's what it sounds like. But, uh, again, this is where, to me, the album starts with yeah. the, not starts in terms of a good song, but it starts in terms of now the trip has begun. Yeah. Because, again, we're getting the, it's floating upstream. Okay. And uh, later, of course, you'd re- we'd visit this in uh, with Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, where we're just like on the full river. Yeah. We're going all the way. Yeah. Uh, but at this point, we're just starting to float upstream. <laughs> yeah. We'll come downstream later. Okay. We'll get to that. Later. But this is where it begins. Well, I mean, okay. For me, a usual, my technical interest in the song, as opposed to the lyrical concerns. It's kind of hard to ignore the uh, lyrics, though, in this yeah. one to me, but go ahead. Okay, that's fine. I mean, I sing along to it, so I must know them. Now, but, with something uh, like Eleanor Rigby, yeah. do you just hear more of the music than you do the lyrics in that? Or is the, are the lyrics so poignant in Eleanor Rigby that they 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 penetrate your, your thick skin Oh no, I get right into I you? I always listen to the lyrics, but okay. sometimes the lyrics have meaning to them, to me, and other times and they're just And in Eleanor Rigby, of, clearly they do. Yeah. And in this one, do you feel they, they do? Story, this is sort of just a song where he's singing. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and even Lennon called it. Uh, oh no, this wasn't the. Anyway, I, maybe he liked this song. I don't know. But, it's in, but once again, Lennon's voice was sped up for the song, making right. it hard to do in rock band. And uh, and then Ringo's cymbal splashes were slowed down, so you get that kind of sound in the background of, of of the song. So it gives this kind of dreamy element to the to the cymbals. And then his voice is, is was recorded more slowly than sped up. So it has, has this kind of wispy quality to it. Mm-hmm. And he actually wanted it to kind of sound like an old man. That's what he wanted. Okay. And um, then what's really curious is, and kind of crazy, is George's guitar solo in the song, which obviously is backwards. All right. But what he did was... And we've had some backwards singing on uh, previous... On Rain, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Rain. So what he did, though, is he figured out the guitar solo forward. Mm-hmm. He like did it, just did a forward guitar solo, what he's going to do. Then he had... George Martin transcribe it backwards. So then he played it backwards, 
normally, just played it normally backwards. Uh-huh. Then they took that and they reversed it and dubbed the reverse forward guitar solo. So it's playing the correct notes. So it's playing the notes you would play forward, but only they're, they're coming out backwards. Wow. So yeah, it took them about six to nine hours to do that. Now, and it's actually two guitars doubled. There's one guitar and then there's a fuzz guitar. In now, these secrets that you're uh, revealing right now. Yeah. Uh, they're how not long... secrets. Sir. Oh, but I'm saying they're not secrets now. Okay. But like when the album came out, how long would it be before people would find out this is how they uh, did this magic? I don't know. I think, I mean, depending how technical in you were. In the 70s, maybe you'd have like books mm-hmm. about it or anything? Well, maybe like at that time. But I think at the time people would have were already starting to try and figure this stuff out, right? Like when they did backwards stuff, other people did backwards. Yeah. Things, but it was a lot more clunky and clumsy than what the Beatles were doing. But you've got it's almost like taking a recipe and trying to break mm-hmm. it down. And like, what are those mm-hmm. flavors? Yeah. Well, I mean, this album and Sgt. Pepper basically is kind of like a the, the sort of like peak of psychedelia, and then you know the Beatles just stop it, and everyone else is still kind of doing it for a couple a year or two after, and they kind of look back and go, oh, the Beatles have stopped. Oh, well, we should, <laughs> you know, because they're all so happy they figured it out. Yeah. Like, oh, I get what you do to phase something, or I know how you. You know, so yeah. By the yeah. time you figured out the magic trick, yeah, yeah, Copperfield has moved on. Yeah, yeah. Now I can make the Statue of Liberty disappear. It's been done. It's all right, done. So we come to uh, another George song, which uh, obviously reflects the complete interest and immersion he had in Indian culture by this point. Where what it started is just sort of interested in the sound of something that he heard in a restaurant scene filmed for the movie Help, and he'd actually become like an acolyte of Ravi Shankar and was learning to play the sitar. Mm-hmm. You know, at the foot of a, a or feet of a master, a master sitar player, and so this song, which, which we haven't said the name of yet, "Love You Too," right? T O T O, yeah, not. not "Love You as Well" or "Love You as yeah. Much," but "Love You" or "Love You Also," but "Love You to Something," right? And what's kind of funny about the title is that uh, is that George was having besides Taxman, which I guess was kind of obvious, George was having trouble with his uh, names for his songs. So for the longest time, the song was called Granny Smith after the apple. <laughs> okay. And uh, that was his working title. So, yeah. Between this and uh, Paul uh, having yesterday be scrambled eggs, uh, were, the, were, the, were the guys eating enough? They were, they were obviously <laughs> hungry. They were spending a lot of time in the studio, and their minds were wandering to the canteen. Yeah, back then, of course, you could not order in food. They did not have pizza in England that could be delivered. So, yep. yeah. So it's the usual kind of gloomy-sounding Harrison song. Uh, part ph- part well, of I mean, Taxman song. wasn't gloomy. No, it no. was it was angry. I know. I'm just saying this is more in the kind of line of yeah, just more dour typical, kind of right. songs. And uh yeah, part love song, part kind of kind of philosoph- philosophical statement. And yeah, it's interesting because it's basically just George and Paul doing this song together. George uh sang to it with his own acoustic guitar, and then Paul did some of the backing vocals, and then George added a fuzz guitar, and then they and the sitar, obviously. And then they brought in a tabla player, his name was Anil Bagwat. He was hired to come in and play the tabla and you know i guess george had immersed himself so much in the culture that and his interest in indian classical music that it's actually very accurate as a song like it starts with uh it starts with like the improvisatory opening mm-hmm. which in indian classical music is called the alap and then it goes into this faster part which is called the gat and so you know he's following the form of indian classical music it's not just you know hijacking it and turning it into a pop song oh, that's he's great. using okay. the forms yeah so it's it's interesting in that he's, way. He's respecting. Mm-hmm. He's respecting yeah, that's right. He's respecting the. Now something else I like about this, and it's it's talking about each day uh, just goes so fast. Turn around, it's past. That's also a very mature mm-hmm. thing of like you know times really times really going by. George was definitely the most thoughtful Beatle. I think. Yeah, yeah. In terms of, you know, being attracted to to 
yeah, being curious about the universe and being attracted to looking at it in all kinds of ways. You also, know? if you if you're concerned that time's moving too fast, you mm-hmm. don't want to spend your time repeating yourself. So I yeah. can understand why he would be the most likely to, as you say, quit the group, to, or or if things are not moving ahead, yeah, he does not want to uh, repeat, 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 yeah. repeat, repeat, yeah, because you know well, yeah. who wants to live a life like that? Well, I didn't think about that, but if maybe you can read the lyrics in that way as a kind of a statement of moving on, of moving forward. Interesting, yeah. So uh, after that, we've got Here, There, and Everywhere. So that covers everything. You don't need to write another song now, because we've got it all. I just wonder how this fits into your psychedelic reverie. Because you're connecting with... Uh, okay, well, let's let's go through it. All right. Uh, this acid, about, the acid trip. Well, I think uh, this, is the lo- this is the loving one. I mean, this okay. is the part of it. This part of an acid trip. Now, you've never, never partaken of acid. No. I did once. Okay. And all of a sudden... Uh, well, it's not, it wasn't all of a sudden. But in the time, in the time that I did, I uh, went for a walk and went, I get the 70s. It, yeah. made, no, it made sense. I mean, <laughs> I get the late 60s, I get the late 70s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's a part of it where you go... Oh, I'm connected to everything. I love everything. You know, unless you're, unless you've, you went uh, home wrong. And, you went home and changed into brown cords. Oh, I did not go home. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the worst place for me to go. But uh, no, we went to a playground. But there's oh, a point where perfect. it's just like, well, everything's love, and I'm connected to you, and I'm connected to you forever. That's mm. what it felt like. Yeah. And so this feels, this feels like that. Okay. that fe- this feels like the good part of the trip. Okay. You know, where you're like, hey, we're all together, and sure. you know, we're eternal, and. Enjoy and here, there, and everywhere. The subconscious is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Actually written by Paul while waiting for John to wake up because he would drive out to Weybridge to write with John at John's house. He was only sleeping. And John was only <laughs> sleeping, yeah. So so Paul was waiting for him. So he just he wrote the song while sitting there. I mean, obviously not all of it, but he wrote most of the song while he's sitting there. And then he and John kind of finished it up after John woke up. Right. I want her everywhere. That's what it feels like. You feel like mm. the person is around you everywhere, even if they're not. Yeah. And then, and then, if if we're going with, are we are we nope. clear on that one? Still got more? No, because I think the Please, other go ahead. the other interesting thing is it took a long time to record this song because of the vocals because they had okay. they did this stacked vocal in the back. Didn't really inf- uh, this song was really influenced by uh, Pet Sounds, the Beach Boys album, and the Beatles kind of wanted to bring that, or at least Paul did, wanted to bring that vocal sound that Brian Wilson was so was so good at getting impossible to do because no one could sing like the Beach Boys or no one could arrange vocals quite like Brian Wilson did but but George Martin just did a very simple kind of stacked vocal sound just block, basically block vocals just to give but it seemed to take him a long time to do it it was like a three days to record this song and once again Paul's voice was sped up making, <laughs> okay. it, making it so hard to sing in Beatles rock band <laughs> alright that is a real caraway seed in your teeth <laughs> that has been there for years alright I think the game did come out, what, three years ago? Four? Yeah. All right. Uh, then, okay, so moving on now to... Uh, Yell- the Drummer Number. The Drummer Number. Yeah. This was this is probably one of my favorite songs as a kid. You mm, know, again, because I was mostly introduced to the Beatles through uh, the animated film. And, uh, yeah, Yellow Submarine, full on. This is the trip, man. This well, is, a, what a, are you seeing? I'm seeing Yellow Submarines. It's, it's fun. fun. You're having fun. And, again, in an acid trip, first of all, we all love each other. Sure. This couldn't be better. And then, you know what? Everything's fun. So here we go. Sure. Well, once again, written by McCartney as a children's song. He intended it as a kid's song. Which is sweet. And with some help from Lennon. And Donovan's, Donovan, the writer, the songwriter Donovan, also says that he contributed uh, the line, uh, Sky of Blue, Sea of Green. Because Paul said, I can't think of anything to fill in this spot. And he said, how about Sky of Blue, Sea of Green? You got it. Like, rhymes with submarine, so it works submarine, for me. Works for mean. Right now, now this is one of those songs that I I feel like I really loved as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I take it face value. Yeah. And uh, someday someone's going to tell me there's a dark meaning to it about some sort of World War II submarine that had some horrible adventure and everyone died. And I'm hoping you're going to tell me now 
It's just what it is. I'm this not, it, not me, brother. This sea cigar. Yeah. It's just a sea it's cigar. It's just a sea cigar. All right. It's Sometimes just, a submarine. It was a song. Just a submarine. It's a children's song, and that's all it is. You yeah. know what I love? I love though that this uh, rock band, not the not the game, which yeah. uh, you you are so angry about, <laughs> uh, but that this band, that this band, who's you know experimenting, trying all these different things, yeah. you know, getting getting into the hardcore stuff, mm. uh, just takes a little time and does a a song for kids. Like doesn't feel that yeah. that's a sign of weakness. No. Or a couple of steps back, just just goes for it. And I think Ringo does a really great job on it. Me too, and I. But I think that's one in, great thing about the Beatles' uh, view of the, the the sort of revolution they were part of was that it was an inclusive revolution. It wasn't exclusive. It wasn't no to kids, no to old folks. It was everyone's included. That's that's Eleanor great. Rigby's in it, and it, and and I'm kids sure I'm it. sure it wasn't this kind of cynical. Submarine captains are in it. Who? <laughs> this is not accurate. Say the submarine captains. Uh, I, I, and another thing that this does, which again I don't want to be cynical, and because I, I don't think it was cynical, was it uh, taps into a new audience because your audience is growing up. You know, it's like okay. now here's here's an ex- because kids are not going to be listening to the super psychedelic yeah. sitar riffs no. and going that's for me. <laughs> but but Yellow Submarine hooked me as a kid, sure. and so I I started me, to like the Beatles. Me too, because it was funny and it had sound effects in it. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what made you go ah. It it could have fit in on uh, a novelty album. It my, could have fit in on a Goofy Greats or something later on. My cousin told me that it was all Ringo Starr who did the sound effects. I think because you liked Ringo and you wanted to give him more work. Mm-hmm. So you imagine that it wouldn't have been anyone else but Ringo doing the sound effects, just because he didn't write the songs, he played the drums. Of course, he did the sound. He had the time. He had the spare time. Yeah. I always, I, I always picture him singing this wearing a hat, <laughs> you know. And then later on, when he became the conductor on uh, Shining Time Station, I always thought, yeah, that's probably what he was wearing while he was singing uh, Yellow Submarine. That full outfit, well, good this, for him. It took him about he looks a, good in a hat. That guy. It took him about a full day to do this to do the basic track for the song because George Martin was away, uh-huh. and so the cats or the mice were playing, and so they just were goofing <laughs> around, having some fun. So finally, they got it down. I think I think John Lennon actually said, you know, you know, guys, it's you know, it's twenty to ten. Let's get to work, get the song done. So they did it, and then a week later, they had a whole bunch of friends come. And people from the studio come and to do the actual sound effects and All the, the, guy, the singing and the, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So like Mel Evans and Neil Aspinall, the Beatles uh, <laughs> assistants were there. And then uh, as well as Elf Bicknell, who was their chauffeur. And then um, friends and family like Patty Harrison and, and uh, Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones and Marion Faithful. They came and they clinked glasses and they, they sang along. And Mel, Mel Evans wore like a big bass drum and he marched around the studio, banging the bass drum while everyone following around singing the song. And, that uh, sounds like a very fun day. It was lots of fun. And then there's a room at Abbey Road that's called the Trap Room. Mm-hmm. And it's like a cupboard. And it's just full of all kinds of junk. Just anything gets thrown in there. So you need a big metal wash basin. There it is. Big metal wash basin. So they took that out. They found some chains in there. They filled the uh, wash basin with water. And they put the chains in it to make like whooshing sounds, make swooshing yeah. sounds. And then they got a bucket of water. And John Lennon blew a straw into a bucket of water to make the bubble <laughs> sounds. And then he went, and John Lennon went and sat in the echo chamber behind Abbey Road, behind Studio 2. And he yelled all the, you know, you know, whatever it full is. Full steam ahead. Yeah, full steam ahead and all those sort of things. And, and also when he's doing the echoing uh, part when Ringo's singing, you know, and he's just, you know, saying the, in a yellow submarine, yoo That's all done in, in the, uh, sitting in this echo chamber away, f- you know, so. Well, if you ever see uh, clips of them live, you know, John likes doing the funny voices. He enjoys doing yeah. the kind of proper funny yeah. voices. Well, he was so. a huge fan of the Goon Show. Yeah, you get a little so, of that, yeah, right? That's... And so, the, yeah, in this case, it just looks like if they weren't having a good time doing this song, then uh, I am reading it completely wrong. <laughs> because this sounds like a, this was just a good time for everybody. Like, yeah, like George Martin's 
experience as a producer of comedy albums finally it really comes into the fore as well because he would have been experienced with layering sound effects and getting it all like getting that sounding good uh, what's interesting what's weird though is that um there's well there's a version i think on i think it's on anthology no no it's um on the free as a bird single mm-hmm. there's a version of yellow submarine that has the original opening which they had this opening of of ringo talking and kind of being echoed by the other beatles uh, and he's talking he's saying and and he does this kind of weird monologue where he says, and we will march to free the day to see them gathered there from Lando Groats to John O'Groats, from Stepney to Utrecht to see a yellow submarine. And then the song starts and it's done. And, and they, uh, t- they took a box, a cardboard box and filled it with coal and swooshed it back and forth to make the sound of marching feet. Yeah. So it sounds like people are marching as they're walking through England and they're going to see this yellow submarine and they did all this work on it and they just they chopped it off and just started the yeah, song. Yeah, that sounds fine. It sounds fine as But it. if you listen to the single uh if you listen to the free as a bird single version, right. it has lots more sound effects in it and it has this Okay, opening. I'll definitely yeah. give it a listen, but yeah. I think that's it close to a perfect song. <laughs> so uh, after that we get to To the side closer. Oh, oh, there we go. Side closer. Uh she said, she said. Yeah. Now this to me, I'm again going with my acid thing. There's a point when you're sure, has lots to do with there's acid. a point when you're on acid. Mm-hmm. We're like you're all having a good time. Yeah. We're all connected. We're all sure. in love. And someone will turn and say the well, first of all, you'll go like, you know what? They'll turn to you and say something about, I just realized something about life. Let me tell you. Yeah. Death there is There are a, seven levels. That's right. Oh yeah, yeah, as Paul did. <laughs> or you just go, Death is a lie. You know, or something. Okay, yeah. it doesn't exist. Yeah. And so yeah, the opening of this where she said, I know what it's like to be dead. You know, it's like, yep, okay. This uh to me. Again, I, I might be just reading into this. But mm-hmm. I don't think I'm reading into this. But uh, that's that's what this feels like. This is that part of the trip where we're all... Now the great truths have been... Our, 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 our minds are opening and we're seeing it all. Yeah. Like, as you say, the seven levels. When, uh, when the Beatles were on their American tour the year before in 65, they, uh, Brian Epstein arranged it so they had six days off in Los Angeles. And so he rented them a house, and it was very secret that the Beatles were staying there, and no one could know except for the thousands of fans that gathered outside the house and climbed trees and hired helicopters to fly over the house trying to see the Beatles there. But while they were there, friends came to visit them. And so one day, uh, David Crosby and Roger McGuinn from The Birds came, and um, they they uh, they all took acid. Ringo, George, and, and John all took acid. And they had a lot of fun. They tried to eat didn't work out very well you know they they sat in an empty bathtub so, they, talking they with each other so hungry <laughs> well they say that john was he was so high that he kept pushing the food off his plate because uh-huh. he said it was moving so he was trying to stop it from moving mm-hmm. but all he did was succeed in pushing it onto the floor but um but while they were there dave um peter fonda came because he was a friend of of uh david crosby's and so he he showed up now the other thing was that john lennon had just had been to a screening of the Jane Fonda film Cat Baloo, which he hated. He hated the movie, and he hated her. So he was kind of wait. A, he hated his sister. He hated Jane Fonda in the movie. Oh, he did not hate his sister. He just hated the character of Cat Baloo. He hated Cat Baloo, and he hated Jane Fonda in the film. Yeah. Okay. So he was like totally against Jane Fonda. All so right. So her brother comes. Yes. And uh, now, when uh, Peter Fonda was younger, he accidentally shot himself in the chest with a with a shotgun. Oh, jeez. And okay. almost died. All right. So. He says he was trying to calm George Harrison down, but he kept ta- kept insisting on talking about the fact that he had almost died on an operating table and he knew what it was like to be dead. Mm. And he was totally freaking out John Lennon. So Lennon had him thrown out. That's not the talk you want again <laughs> when you're on acid. So Lennon had him thrown out 
because he was afraid. I don't want to have a bad trip, so he had him thrown out of the out of the place. So that's kind of the story behind the song. Oh, nice. Okay. Which was, and it was the last song recorded for the album. And it's almost like one of the most straight ahead songs on it. So even though it has this big acid background to it and it t- talks a lot about the, you know, sort of acid subjects, the song itself is fairly simple. It just has like the only kind of weird kind of effect is, is this kind of, uh, this sort of note, this kind of fuzz note that's played during the song. But other than that, it's fairly simple. And Paul McCartney has said that he didn't play bass on it. Hmm. That he, they, he said, I don't know why we might have gotten to a fight in the studio and I left and he thinks that George played bass on it. But, other people say that Paul played bass on it, so no one knows for sure. It's also uh, got more nostalgia in it with the uh, when I was a boy, everything was right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, and now we're yeah. now we're into this. But that's part of that's the weird part of the acid trip. The acid in England and acid in America, two totally different things. In America, you got acid rock. You got this incredible like freeing. You know, everyone's screaming and yelling, and everything gets louder and crazier. In England, everyone goes backwards, and they're all singing about. Uh, reading Wind in the Willows, and it all yeah. becomes about English well, gardens. Between England and, and America, it's just interesting, yeah. isn't it? How the two one's about one became about more, childhood. Yeah, it's it's more introverted, and yeah. also England has more of a sense of history, whereas America is now, 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 loud, yeah, loud, loud. Not stereotyping America, but you know I'm you know I'm right. Uh, they're out outward, and, and yeah. England is inward. Yeah. You know, and then uh, you know both will both will start a fight in a bar, but in a very different way. And then the British people afterwards will be fine with it. But it feels like, yeah, when you're when you're talking about you know nostalgia, things used to be used to be you know great. They weren't. You just remember yeah, it, yeah. you know, wrong. Uh, and then you know you got now. What's the next thing you're going to think about? You're going to think about death because that's you know when you get perspective. Unfortunately, that's what that's what kicks in. Sure, sure. Okay, so now we're going to move to side two. Oh, wait, wait a second. I got to flip the album over. You got to flip Hold the on. album over? Okay, let me just. And I got to take these pennies off of the uh, needle. <laughs> that, you're right. This really does tear them up pretty bad. Okay. Hold you it. Oh, it's got one of those things that's got an angle at the top. You know that thing? It's hard to get it over. Okay, got it. And we'll put it back on. Good. All right, so we start with Good Day Sunshine. Right. One of many songs that celebrated one of the sunniest summers uh, of the 60s. Really? Was it? To, was yeah, it was notably sunny. There's um, the other song, "Sunny Afternoon," was written mm-hmm. from from that summer, and also "Hot Time Summer in the City," the the Love and Spoonful song. <laughs> where there's All lots right. of other songs that came out. From there was that a too. lot of pro sun agenda back there then. There was a lot of sun. We had no uh, we had no skin cancer back then. It was just all sun was good for you. <laughs> no, it's a it's a nice counter uh, to uh, your Eleanor Rigby's and what have you. It's nice yeah. to have a little good day sunshine. Yeah, it's just a little. It's a nice little song. It was recorded very quickly. They uh, didn't do like a ton of work on it. Um, I mean, in fact, the, um, although there are lots of overdubs on it, I remember we talked about before that the Beatles would rehearse in the studio and then do you know one or two takes, get the best take, and then use that as the base, the base of you know sort of the basic track, and then add all their overdubs to that. And so you know the version on the album is take one mm-hmm. after numerous rehearsals, but it's take one, and then all the overdubs are added to it, including uh, George Martin playing that honky tonk piano bit that once again was recorded slowly and then sped up. <laughs> they really did seem to like doing that. Yeah. Now, one thing they're doing on this album that doesn't seem they were doing... Well, like he said, it so made good. you seem like a really good musician. Ah, yeah, very good. Maybe we should speed this up <laughs> and in post. We'll see whether it's slow sure. it down. Yeah. Well, I'll just talk quite slow. And you just speed it up. And it's like, that's an amazing podcast. <laughs> well, in previous albums, it feels like... And, and later albums, it felt like they would always undercut a sweet sentiment with with something. But in this... In this um, 
this uh, album, it really does feel like they'll just go for it. Like uh, Good Day Sunshine, you're just consistently... Yeah. Have, there's no at the end, you know, but rain might come. There's no yeah, yeah. little under... It's the same thing with uh, Here, There, and Everywhere, which, you know, I say this was the anti-Eleanor Rigby. Clearly, that was the anti-Eleanor Rigby song. But, uh, but yeah, there was no Paul happy and then John giving it the old goose afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it just true. was what it was. It's true, but in a way, it might show less integration in their, their songwriting. Okay, yeah. You know? I mean, later on, of course, we're getting the it's getting better all the time. It couldn't get much worse. But that's the kind of flavor yeah. that previous songs feel like mm. they've had. Sure, Yeah. sure. All right. And next song is uh, John's, um, what would you call it, his uh, song written for hip people. Oh. The original title, the working title was You Don't Get Me. Okay, so, all right. Yeah. Which is a teenage sound to that, it. That does sound very, very <laughs> like a like a teenage song. Yeah, yeah. in that way, it's sort of a companion piece to Rain, and that it's you know kind of also kind of makes that us versus them. Yeah, analogy. you squares don't yeah. get it. You, you squares going out to your jobs, yeah. doing your work. You people with your analytical minds don't understand creativity. And as a as a as a dad, as part of the working uh, guy, do you shake your fist at this one as well? No, it doesn't bother me that much. All right, good. That's it's not. It's um. I mean, it's kind of. I mean, if that's what it's saying, you can take it lots of different ways, obviously. But you know, I can take it a, a slightly different way as well, which is, uh, you are you have everything, but you're missing what's right in front of you. Sure. You just don't. You just don't yeah, see because you're materialist and you're not part of the psychedelic consciousness. Yeah, that's you, that's that again. That square. is that completely can be one way to take it. Lennon later described this song as a fancy paper around an empty box. So that's how he felt about this song. Really? Yeah. Okay. No, I can sort of. Okay, I can sort of see that. I, I, you know, to to me, there's a little bit of. Uh, I, sorry, I keep coming back to Eleanor Rigby because that's the most poignant song to me on the album. But you know, in that case, it's someone who no one sees. Mm-hmm. No one sees her, and no one sees the father. Yeah. And in this one, it's someone who's aware that they're not being seen, or at least they think it. You know, yeah. that's the. Yeah. Yeah. You can you think of the kind of cynical. Yeah, I don't say cynical, but you can think of it as the kid way of like you don't, as you say, you don't get me, you don't see me, or you can see it as like someone who's like you know is not being seen by people around, and that hurts. Yeah, you know, it's like I'm here, I'm I I exist, but you've got the rest of the world, and I can't compete with that. Sure. Um, I we, when we were talking about Rubber Soul, uh, we were mentioning that, you know, it was the Beatles were under the under a deadline. They're really under pressure to get that album done, and so what happened was the old. Uh, system of three blocks of recording time, you know, 7.30 to 10.30 at night, in the afternoon, in the morning, uh, got broken down Okay. by the Beatles. And when they were doing Revolver, they kind of kept, they kind of kept to those kind of hours. So mm. they stopped following the strict, you know, session. So like, for instance, this song, And Your Bird Can Sing, was actually recorded in two 12-hour long sessions. So they kept, you know, obviously there were probably breaks for tea and stuff like that and pee, but there was, <laughs> there was no, uh, there was no like break of two hours or whatever. It was just like one long or right. really long session as they tried to work. And what makes the fancy paper in this song is um, John or sorry Paul and George. They uh, worked out worked up together this great uh, dual guitar part that's in the song, and it's that you know dee 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 dee. It's actually two guitars playing that part. One is capoed on the second fret, and the other one's just open. And they played uh, kind of two nearly matching parts, but a little bit different. It's a great part, uh, probably playing on their casino, their Epiphone casinos, which was a guitar that um, uh, Paul bought. And I think about 64, I'm going to say that he bought this, maybe 65, he bought uh, an Epiphone. Now, Epiphone was a 
it was a American brand of guitar that actually wasn't really a brand anymore. It was bought by Gibson, but they still were producing guitars under that under that brand name. Okay. And the yeah, sixty four. So and McCartney said he was recommended to him by John Mayall, the uh, uh, who was um, the leader of the Bluesbreakers. He told him it was a great guitar, and the reason that Mayall liked it and why Paul liked it so much was that it had a kind of a weak um, pickup on it. Um, there are P90 pickups. And so what sound would that make? Well, that what it was was it, you could create a really nice overloaded guitar sound, and yet it still had uh, it still had some harmonics in it. It could still pick up nuances in the playing. Okay, you know, so it wasn't totally overloaded and, and just absolute fuzz, where it was just completely <laughs> it was really hard to pick up what was happening. You could still play a kind of a rough, uh, you know. So for instance, the guitar solo in Taxman would have been his Epiphone Casino, and likewise. Uh, Paul and, and George on and so and in 66 George and, and John bought one for themselves too because they liked Paul so much okay so they both bought the uh, Epiphone Casinos the only difference between Paul's and theirs was Paul was left-handed so his was turned upside down and so he had to take off the he had to take the pick guard off it and so yeah so in fact Paul McCartney still plays his casino to, to this day he still has that guitar oh neat because okay. he liked it that much that it, just, it stayed in you know the guitar that he loves to play so yeah. By the way, we always uh, have some great trivia on this show. I think that was the best trivia of the night. Is that right? Yeah, that he still plays that guitar to this day. Okay. Yes. There you go. That would be that would be the trivia of the night. Yeah, the two main guitars for Harrison on the album was the Casino, the Epiphone Casino, and then he had just bought himself a Gibson SG, mm-hmm. which is kind of has the benefits of the Les Paul without uh, the weight of the Les Paul, and so it's kind of a, a nicer guitar. It still has a good sound. Too. Now this is Ian's dumb question sure. of the uh, of the show. Mm-hmm. There's always there's probably more than one dumb question. I meant but... Super Gibson. Oh, okay, good. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Now with the and your bird can sing. Yeah, I don't quite get what that means. What does uh, now now bird of course could be a, a woman in England. Your sure. bird can sing. Sure. Uh, is it a way like ah yeah and your bird can sing? Almost I think it's sounds like, uh, almost sounds like Cockney slang of like yeah you you and your bird can go sing over there. Like or what does it what does it mean to you? What do you think it means? Well, I just think okay w- way I think of it is that and your bird can sing. It just means that and this thing that you have can do this thing too. Do you know what I mean? Like you are bragging okay. about these things that you have right. and your bird can sing. So you have all these things, including this, you know, but you don't see the beauty of it or you don't. I'm, you don't see that your bird's green. You yeah. don't see the bird can sing. And yeah. you don't see me. You don't see you don't see the beautiful things in front of you because yeah. you're seeing all the other yeah. stuff. You're just too wrapped up in the in the fact that you have a bird that can sing, but you don't see the other beautiful elements of, of the life around you. you know? oh, okay. So it's, you know, it's about status and, you know, status symbols and, you know, unlike, say, the Beatles who, you know, didn't drive Rolls Royces around or, or have, you know, elegant suits or anything. You know, they didn't, weren't totally uninterested in status at all. Now, are you being sarcastic maybe, right now? Maybe. Because I think I've seen John Lennon's Rolls Royce <laughs> um, in person. All right. Yes. Now we're... He had a... Uh, he had a loudspeaker built in onto the top of it so that mm-hmm. when they're driving home, they would follow cars and he would yell at them from the car and just, you know, things like, you know, telling them to, uh, that they should pull over and, you know, and, and uh, I can't remember what else. He just, he just would speak into it and yell at cars. <laughs> nice. Uh, by the way, on. going with my whole, this is all an mm-hmm. acid trip thing, going yes. through the night, then the sun comes, that's your good day sunshine. Oh, okay. And then there's always like this weird uh, thing. It isn't always, but this is a pretty common thing with acid where like, do I exist? Can anyone see me? Am I real? I don't know. And, you know, so that could fit in with that. Sure. All right. Uh, then we go. Another beautiful song. Okay. I really like the song a lot. I think it's a really good song. I, there's, there's a bit of me that always wants to just not say the title and see how long you'll go without actually saying the title of the song. Oh, really? Yeah, because I find myself like you go into a thing and it's like, oh, that's really interesting. But we have not set up what <laughs> we're talking about yet because you're so, you're so deep 
in the uh, so minutia yes, that you do not see the big picture. Maybe you know what? that's me. Dave? Yes? You know what? And you don't see me. Your bird can sing. You're yeah, just in this whole thing. You. That's true. you know, maybe right. maybe right. there's something about that song we can so all So the song for number one. Uh, for no one? There we go. Sounds good. I just said that because the um, French horn player who was brought in to play it First, at first thought it was called for number one when he saw it written, when he saw the title written. Well, down. that's not a bad idea. It's like saying that this song will go to number one. So, written by Paul. All right. Written in Switzerland while he was on vacation with Jane Asher. Original title: Why did it die? This song is, uh, you know, okay. If it wasn't for Eleanor Rigby, on um, again, could I mention Eleanor Rigby more? This would be the most heartbreaking song because this one, <laughs> both of them are very real. Take a drink every time Ian mentions Eleanor. Yeah, Rigby. these aren't songs about uh, my baby died in a car accident. I'm yeah. feeling so sad. Mm-hmm. This is this is realistic. Yeah. Like both Eleanor Rigby and this song are like realistic sadness, and yeah. that's like the 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 love of your life. It, she's not gone, but yeah. she's gone. And what's interesting is he wasn't, I mean, we've talked before about a lot of songs that were written during rough patches with Jane and Paul. And he's come out with You Won't See Me and I'm Looking Through You and yeah. and songs like that. And this song actually didn't come out of a bad time. He was quite happy. So in really, it's just, it's another character song like Eleanor Rigby where he's just writing, you know, he's starting to try to write uh, to stories. He's trying to write to you know, to create situations and write about them rather than just all, everything yeah. be personal. You well, know? this is a, this is another song about loneliness. Mm-hmm. could also be, I mean, you can take the last song as loneliness as well. I mean, that's a song about someone who you can't see me, even though we're, we're, we're in the same room, you cannot see me. And in this one, we're, we're together, yet we couldn't be farther apart. And uh, if you've ever been through a relationship like this where you're still with the person yeah. But they're but they're gone. Yeah, you know, uh, that's that's can be worse than than them actually being gone. Uh, but this song, yeah, this song is just heartbreaking. So, um, great song though too. Like beautiful. it's actually it's like one you you know you listen to, you can't stop listening to it. It's uh, uh, amazing, you know, music. But uh, oh, jeez. Well, Paul plays most of the instruments on it, uh, just because it was a fairly simple song in terms of the the instruments. And he's probably at the studio half an hour before the other guys were, so he just did it. So he played bass and then piano and sang, and then he added clavichord to it, which is kind of a almost a kind of a later harpsichord. So it's it's a still an, a sort of ancient piano or keyboard. And what's interesting is he rented it from Martin's production company Air. They rented it the clavichord from them for five guineas, which is about a pound and five pence. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. It's also and, a very mature song as well. Yeah. It's a mature love song. It's not the kind of love song. You don't have this problem when you're teenagers in love because you're not living together. You're not you're doing any of that. But yeah. And then because, and it's a very, very kind of classic song. You know, it follows a very, kind of very, very formal kind of style. All right. And so when George heard, he thought, well, that, what this really needs is a French horn. And so he brought in this French horn player named Alan Civil, and uh, who is quite a well-known, renowned French horn player. And so he he played to the track, and then, but what was interesting because as usual it was very speeded, mm-hmm. so uh, it McCartney's vocal was put up and the song was slowed. So it so what happened was it uh, the song fell between the cracks, and so it was neither B flat nor B or B major. It was just in this sort of weird place, and so Civil had to tune his French horn to the song in order to, to play oh, wow, along with okay. it. Yeah. And he thought that was kind of strange, but uh, it's just, this is the nature of what they were doing at the time. French hornist. He got uh, confused. Yeah, he had a yeah. hard time. Sure. So let's go to the, the uh, another John song, Dr. Robert. Now, it, when I was a kid, I bought the U.S. album of this album, and it was missing Dr. Robert. 
and your bird can sing and oh. um the other song i'm only sleeping were all taken off of it to be put on yesterday and today by the u.s record company <sighs> so when the album was released it was this really kind of paul mccartney heavy album yeah with a ringo song and then only one i guess only one one or two the two john songs were left was there any uh word as how the beatles felt about the oh, they uh, hated remixing? it they, they hated, hated it, it. Yeah. but they had no choice they had no choice no it wasn't up to them okay so i'm sure they complained and like i say i think it's significant that when when dave dexter jr was was uh demoted at capital that it, that was after revolver and it never it didn't happen on any of the other albums oh okay that. interesting and it might just be that the beatles had enough enough uh enough is enough and they just you know put their foot down and yeah. said no more they were at this point the biggest band in the world, right? They were the biggest band in the world, but really it doesn't matter. You are you were signed to a contract, and you well, were understood. It was up to, but and, you might want to keep. But I guess uh, the cash cow smiling. Thinking about it, it was around this time that their contract was renewed. By, so that might have been another part of it that it was put into the contract okay. that the albums couldn't be. Uh, now, no, just going with my old. This is all sure. part of a trip. Sure. There's a part. There's a part in your trip where things start to go bad. Okay. And that's where you need the guy who steps in and goes, I've got some orange slices. I got, uh, we're going to give him a little pot and we're going to lower them were down. Were you playing soccer while you're on your trip? <laughs> you want orange slices okay. if things are going wrong. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and you want some B vitamins. You also want a little of that, little vitamin C as well. Uh, and so this is where Dr. Robert comes in okay. and will fix you up because things are, things are not maybe going super great. But this guy knows what he's doing and we're going to straighten you out. Once again, a fairly simple song. Yep. With, uh, Goofy. With some really nice lead guitar work from yeah. George, uh, which almost kind of feels like country and western meets the sitar in a way. But the song was actually written about a true, a real person that the Beatles heard what? about in New York. Yeah, there was a Dr. Robert Freeman, his name was. Yeah. And he was a doctor who gave his patients uh, shots, vitamin B12 shots that were... Oh, well, who brought up vitamin B12 right out of nowhere? Heavily, that would be me. Heavily laced with amphetamines. Boom. There and you go. So he would create a market for himself by getting his patients addicted to his vitamin shots. And he, I think he was debarred in 77 or something like that. Okay. But yeah, he was an actual person. And so... Wow. Yeah. How do you think he felt about this song? What if I he's ever been interviewed probably about Probably never it? knew what it was. He was an Austrian Eventually, doctor. Eventually he must have. He might have, but... Do you think so? One of the most popular albums in the world has a song about you specifically. It's amazing. No what... one ever brings the album to the guy and do you goes, know what? what do you think? My parents do not know a single song from Revolver. Okay, well here's... Besides the... like Eleanor Rigby and stuff like that, but, but they don't know but like... Dave, they don't know the deep cuts, Dave, man. How, how Robert, ma- Dr. Robert is a deep uh-huh. cut. Okay? Yeah, how many songs are about your parents on Revolver though? If the song's about you... He probably would have been, his children would have been past Beatle age by that point as well. So Again, it's the, the cult. Okay. Just saying. Someone would Just have saying. mentioned that, it feels okay, like. Maybe. One of the patients. If they knew who he was. Yeah, it's possible. Okay. One of his patients was Jackie Kennedy. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. Okay. All right. Anything else on that one? Nope. Sounds good. Moving on. Uh, I want to tell you, what, another George? Another George song. What? Working title, Laxton Superb, <laughs> which is a, a, a British apple. Again, I would love to have a trivia contest sometime where you list an, al- an album's worth of songs, but only by their original titles, and see <laughs> how many uh, uh, fans can uh, can guess the actual guess or no. Are they working the title? Album. I don't know. Is it, I don't know what it's called. So, oh, yeah. I don't. Okay. Yeah. So, um, what's, it, what's interesting is kind of like eight days eight days a week. It, it opens with a fade in, mm-hmm. but it kind of works in the context of the song being about uh, the inability to express what you want to say. To have it open and to have it fade in and fade out, so it, it the song has no conclusion to it. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, this one it it's completely 
uh, fits in with the drug idea. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're getting sick of this whole drug comparison, mm. but like this to me is the is the part of the drugs where all of a sudden you realize the meaning of the universe yeah. and you want to communicate it, but you sound like an idiot once things come out of your mouth. In yeah. your head, it's perfect, but uh, but this vessel that you've got that you have to communicate through cannot communicate it, and so you just sound like a dope, and you know it. But inside your head, everything is crystal clear and uh, and could not be more perfect. Um. Well, much like me on this show, <laughs> inside my head, this all sounds brilliant. Yeah, and then uh, then I open my yap, and this is this is what we get. What's interesting with Beatles songs or with George songs and the Beatles, I think, is that his songs, the meaning of the song is reflected in the 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 music of the song itself. All right. So, like in this song, he has this crazy chord, like this jarring dissonant chord at the end of every, every end of every verse. Mm-hmm. You know, so he sings that things aren't working out well, and it has this kind of weird, and it gets really dissonant. Yeah. So it's just interesting that he likes to use that. He does it in quite a few songs where the songs, you know, more than Paul and more than John, the the music reflects the, what's happening in the lyrics. And um, the other thing, let's going back to uh, George's role in the band, is that when I was reading the Lewis on uh, the Complete Beatles recording, uh, Complete Beatles recording sessions, Jeff Emmerich said. And he always felt like the George songs got short shrift from from the two the two main Beatles. It was kind of like, oh, it's George's song. Let's get this done really quickly, and we'll move on really right. fast. And okay, that could be true to a degree. Right. The thing is, John felt the same way. John felt that his songs got short shrift from Paul. Well, did anyone, Paul wanted to work on Paul's songs? Did George songs. feel that his songs were getting short shrift? I imagine George felt that way. If John but, felt but that way, George would have felt. That yeah, way. John has said that. George has not said that. That's just, that's an assumption. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, I think George felt that he he was he got short shrift as All well. Right. I mean, I think he's had that. It's not the worst place in the in the world to be the underdog. It's not the worst to... place in the world, but I always disagree with that. Like, okay, Paul added this great piano part to the song. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic piano part. There's a thing where George is talking about hesitating, and and Paul does this little one note part to it. You know, that reflects that idea of hesitation, of not being able to say something. You know, and it's just it's a very thoughtful piano part, and the fact that this song took less time to record than maybe another song that was more complicated i mean why would be george be complaining he's the one who spent nine six to nine hours recording a backwards guitar part for a john lennon song but here's you know what i mean like as an artist okay there's two things i think this song represents one it represents the also represents if you ever had this guy Mm. at a party who's trying to tell you something and he's like dave man i love you and i just want to tell you oh that's great no you don't get it i love you man and you can't get that guy away or he wants to communicate something about a movie or something to you and he can't get it all out right and so he just repeats sure there's that that's one thing that this song is about but the other thing i think it also could be about is the frustration as a musician like when you when you when you're hearing all this and you hear the end result and go well that was great but you don't know what in george's head he wanted this to be yeah so like that perfect song that's in his head is not the one on the album and that can feel frustrating and feel like oh if we'd only had more time i could have gotten this perfect thing out (laughs) which coincidentally is what this song could also be about which is i've got something beautiful in my head that i want to present but i've got these damn hands that can only play the guitar like this and we've only got three hours and i'm limited and so the the perfection in my head of this song becomes this song that you're hearing now Ugh, that's just frustrating and same with john there's that I could see like, but there's also our, our well yeah john for sure but there's also our own perception of things that's maybe not ch- true to reality because mm-hmm. don't you think it's kind of significant to me that George is a junior partner. George isn't that well regarded, and it, George's interest in in all things Indian really kind of takes over the band's social life for the next year. Well, how you, you perceive know what I mean? They is even, not how things are. They even go to India 
to study under the Maharishi yeah. under under George's enthusiasm. Paul and George or John are that enthusiastic. What Ringo's definitely not that enthusiastic about it. But they go there because of George. But you the know, way so. things are in life isn't the way you perceive them. Yeah. I mean, you can you can have the guy who thinks life is uh, unfair and is a sad sack, mm-hmm. and and he keeps getting the best things, the best things, the best things, and the person who has what you think would be a terrible life, and they, they everything's happy, happy, happy. Yeah, how you perceive is not necessarily how things are. So we're we have the, a different perspective than the people who would have been involved at the time. Also, it must have been crazy to be the Beatles. How crazy would it have been to be the Beatles back then you would uh, it's surprising everyone didn't go nuts cuckoo crazy yeah cuckoo crazy bananas I'm gonna top you by saying that (laughs) all right let's move on to another Paul McCartney song okay because he's got to get you into my life he does yeah and I hope he does so uh Paul writing uh to uh in a pastiche style here he wanted to write a Motown style song in the sort of Holland Dozier Holland style uh and doesn't do it because he's Paul McCartney, he's not Holland Dozier. Holland. So even if you want to write that Motown sounding song, it's still going to end up sounding like the Beatles doing their own song. Yeah, you are you your know? own limitations and uh, good and, for them. And like we mentioned with Rubber Soul, the Beatles always thought that their influences were just out there on their sleeve and obvious to everyone. <laughs> and no one really, yeah. it's hard to pick up a lot of the influences because they're so, they've become so subsumed into the Beatle consciousness. Well, if there's a moral about this particular episode of our show, it's that your perceptions are probably wrong, you know? <laughs> Especially if you're walking around on acid at a, in a kid's playground. Could, but you know, you're the guy who's walking out there and you think your hair looks terrible and everyone's looking at your hair and no one cares. Or you think you look great and you don't realize your fly's down. You know, you never know. So, you know, your perspective... Correct. But uh, the, the one note I have here is, how good is this song? Man, this it is, is a so good, good song, is it? And it feels like a great romantic song. But yeah. If you read the book many years from now, the, the biography about Paul McCartney, the official, the, auth- the authorized biography of Paul McCartney, he says in there that it was actually written about pot. It was his song to, to grass. Okay. Which, uh, Lennon felt it was about acid. Sometimes but, it's good not to know. But uh, Lennon was wrong because Paul McCartney hadn't taken acid yet, so it wouldn't have been about that. Once again... Perceptions, perception, and I don't. You know, sometimes the tr- sometimes the truth, if there is a truth, yeah, you know, is uh, not worth uh, not worth hearing. Why not don't worth, you hear yeah. the song as you want to hear it? <laughs> exactly. I the idea that it's about, it doesn't even to me what he says isn't even supported by the lyrics of the song. If you listen to the lyrics, they're not really. I think everybody that read sense. that in that book just took a deep sigh, shook yeah. their head, turned the page, and read <laughs> Said, more. Oh, marijuana talking. Yeah, that's so, great. So although he, so they were kind of working outside of their, they wanted to do like this kind of. Funky Funk Brothers, you know, Motown style song, but instead it's the Beatles. So it took them a while to to figure out how to do it properly. You know, mm-hmm. they did lots of different. They did a really fast version of it, and then they finally got the backing track that they liked. And then it sat for a, around a month. And then during the layoff, during the time they had off because they didn't do the movie, Paul McCartney spent a lot of time going to clubs and stuff around London with with Jane, Jane Asher, and they saw uh, Georgie Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames, which were this kind of well known club act, and he did some had some singles as well and and they had a, he had a horn section and paul really liked that so when he he just you know after th- thinking about it for a while he thought this song needs a horn section so two of the blue flames came in and then some other um some other uh session musicians came to record and so they had three trumpets and it was supposed to be a tenor and a baritone sax but the baritone sax fell ill so they ended up having two tenor saxophones play and because it was Jeff Emmerich, he put the mics down the, the bell of the instruments or into the bell of the instruments. Mm-hmm. So it was right inside the trumpet and right down inside the saxophone, which was very unusual. Usually when you mic'd instruments like that, you mic'd it like from six feet away so you could get the whole sound. But what Emmerich wanted wasn't the reality. He wanted this kind of 
you know, this sort of, well, what the Beatles wanted, this kind of different sounding, weird kind of sounding world. And by close miking, you took out all the ambiance from the instrument so you could really control what people heard of that, you know. So you so you put some through that and then it was all compressed, like super compressed so that, you know, it was, you just got this really punchy sound and it's really great. So you have to admit the horns and that sound super great. Mm-hmm. And unlike anything else you'd heard before that, you know, they're just right so present in the song, especially when they're screaming, they have those screaming it's notes. It's so unusual in rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really good song, and then the horns are arranged by Paul and George. Uh, Paul would play the piano and kind of go. I think it should sound like this and kind of tootle around a bit, and then George would uh, would make the notations. So yeah, and then we and then I'm sorry that we're ending your favorite album. Your favorite we Beatles album is about to one end. of the greatest songs ever written. Oh, is that what you feel? Oh yeah. Okay. The song is fantastic. All right, I would like to hear your reasoning for this. What's amazing about this song? Mm-hmm. is that this was the first song recorded for the album. By the way, Dave, we're mm-hmm. now playing that game again where we have not said the title of the song. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, everybody. Tomorrow Never Knows, the final song. Very good. Moving um, on. Yeah, the, this was the first song recorded. It was actually at the time called Mark One. It didn't have a name. Tomorrow Never Knows was a Ringoism that John borrowed for the title. But um, it, so, yeah, we were saying that uh, well, while the layoff was happening, you know, Paul was exploring his world, George was exploring his world, John decided that he was going to take take acid again. This would have been his third trip. Right. But he was going to do it like officially. And so at that what time... What does officially mean? He wanted to do it like a, like a true acid trip, not just like a goof off with some friends or an accidental dosing by a dentist. He wanted, he wanted this to be like a real acid trip. And so there was no acid subculture in England. Okay. So we had to turn to Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert's book, The Psychedelic Experience, which was a manual of of taking for taking acid okay and because um they were influenced by aldous huxley's experiences with lsd and huxley felt that lsd would would help with a new religious consciousness would arise in in the world through through acid through drug taking and so like he thought because it'd be like a resurgence of transcendent mystical religious experience that's what huxley felt he wrote a book called the doors of perception which talks about about uh psychedelic or psychotropic drugs okay and that's where the doors got their name from i was about to ask that question there we go okay and so um asked and answered asked and answered yeah (laughs) and so um so so what leary and elpert wanted to do because acid is a really unpredictable drug obviously so they what they wanted to do was to create a kind of a framework comparable to like the mystical systems of like catholicism or 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 uh, islam have Mm -hmm. and so they borrowed a book called the tibetan book of the dead they took some of the and what that book was designed for was it's supposed to be designed to help talk the dying person through the delusory states of death into uh, sort of the, the kind of well between the the states that exist between uh, between the incarnations. So that's the idea of this book. So you're supposed to be like whispering it to this person as they're dying, and it's supposed to help them to reincarnate or to reach final the final state, whatever right. that is. And so. So they took they took the Tibetan Book of the Dead and they sort of incorporated it into their own kind of hippie, dipsy doodly thing. Uh, have you ever seen the the book, The Psychedelic Experience? No. Well, it's full of like these really like super colorful pictures that I guess you're supposed to like stare at <laughs> while you're on acid. Okay. And read and so what Lennon did was he read the book out into a tape recorder, and then he played it back to himself as he was tripping. Okay. So he just did it by himself. He did this in January '66. And so it's not like, the best idea to do something like this by yourself. It was supposed to be like a serious voyage of self-discovery. Right. And so, like I say, he's got it. And, but after he went through this, he so wanted to like 
capture this experience in song. Like he wanted to convey what it felt like. Right. So that's why it borrows a lot of lines. So like they turn off your, you know, relax, turn off your mind and float downstream is like quoted from the book. Okay. It's not original to Lennon. And um, so, yeah. So no, sorry. I got a question about sure. that. Is there in the, t- no, you probably don't know I this, don't, yeah. but uh, maybe you would, because again, uh, when in the earlier, uh, I'm only sleeping, it's flowing upstream yeah. and this one is flowing downstream. Okay. Is there a difference in flowing upstream and downstream to what this means? Because I know, again, Lucy and Sky with Diamonds, we're just like on a boat, on a river, just going. Yeah. But like in this one, is there a difference? Like does downstream mean going towards, towards coming back, going upstream? Does that mean? Well, downstream Because is... that's the way I kind of took it was upstream means we're going into it. Downstream means we're returning home. Well, I think to anyone downstream is the, is the easiest way to travel, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going upstream, it's hard work. Okay, well, that seems weird in I'm Only Sleeping yeah. that we're floating upstream, if that's the yeah. more difficult well, one. But floating upstream... Because that's the lazy song. You're, no, no, you're in a dream state. You can float upstream. Reality, you cannot float upstream. Well, there's no reality here, is there? Yes. Okay, I mean, talk about in the real world. There is real world okay, around you. Okay, all right. Okay? So in the real world, you cannot float upstream. Okay. Right? You have to turn on your engine of your motorboat okay. and motorboat upstream. Understood. If you want to float, your the river will take you downstream. That's correct. That's so in a dream state, you can float upstream. Mm-hmm. The Tibetan Book of the Dead is not about dream states. It's about the re- real states that you're in. And so what you're supposed to do is relax and just let yourself float and let not worry about anything. Don't struggle against it. Just float downstream, right? So you don't feel those two songs are connected? No, I don't. Even though one's floating upstream, one is floating downstream. I don't feel they're connected at all. And okay, I, I I have to because it's just so <laughs> you know it's so it's, sure, um, you know fine. it's 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 an uncommon thing to say. Like I would never say to you in normal life, hey Dave, let's just all relax and float upstream. Sure. Like we wouldn't, and then we're like, let's now let's float downstream. But in the same <laughs> album, you bring that up. Okay. Uh, I I think this is you know going and coming back. But, okay. But please continue. Um. So, yeah. I mean. This was the time when Lennon just started to basically self-medicate himself into, uh, I mean, it's a dangerous thing. What Leary and Alpert were trying to do mm-hmm. is not very smart, I don't think. You know, I'm going to agree There's with a you. difference between meditative states, controlled meditative states in Buddhism or meditative states in you know Catholicism or whatever kind of meditative system you're using, whether it's Sufism or whatever, right? Right. Those are systems that have frameworks that are just your mind in control of the situation, uh-huh. that you relax into this sort of altered consciousness. Taking a drug to create that sort of altered consciousness, to create this ego egoless state, right? You know, it's to me, it's incredibly dangerous. Well, it's getting a car. It's and getting a car. To t- it'll get you there, but sometimes the car can't be controlled by you. Like it'll go its own way and crash you into a wall. And although people say that Lennon's personality had lots of, you know, like positive changes while he was dosing himself with acid, he right. became a much mellower, less aggressive person. But at the same time, he became that person because he was losing himself in this drug. And luckily for Lennon, he was an incredibly strong person. There were lots of people who who took acid in the sixties who did not return from their state of ego of ego loss. But to be to uh, be fair to a lot of those people too, they had the if you're if you're a person who you know like you're your typical hippie. Nothing against your typical hippie. Any typical hippies out there, sure. that's fine. You're a typical hippie. You take your acid. You you kind of vanish into this world. You could probably take off for a week or two or a month or whatever, and people won't notice too much. Yeah. But if you're John Lennon. 
someone's asking the next day, where's John? What's John doing? Because John's got stuff to do. So yeah. you never are you never are away from the the, the you know the, the eyes of someone. Okay, but okay, like to counter that argument okay, to to people it. who, you know, uh, Sid Barrett from the from Pink Floyd. Right. Same he same thing happened to him, but he ended up as a as a cas- casualty. Now, did he have and, the s- and same Brian Wilson? S- okay, let's go with both of those. Did both of them have uh, have the same uh, structure? Like it, when we're talking about the Beatles, it feels like they have to have a new album every three oh. four months. Okay, now did, Bri- did, Brian did, Wilson, did Sid have to, to? Yes, he was the band leader of Pink, Pink I under- Floyd. He I understand, but how often did Pink Floyd have to come out with a, a new album? Was it every six months? Like yeah. was it just like the Beatles? Yeah, they were in the same. Okay. They were in the same mill, and and Brian Wilson more. I'm so. asking this as a question. Not yeah. as a, I'm trying to prove you wrong. I'm just like, I didn't realize that this this you know steady stream of albums was required of all the bands. Oh, this sure. seems pretty intense. Oh, no. That was that was the industry standard of the day. Okay. That at least a, every year you had to come with an album and have singles and go on tour and do your thing. And Brian Wilson produced two albums a year by himself, produced right. and wrote and but out, but Brian Played Wilson on and clearly on. is a very famous story of this all going wrong. Sure, like I mean, that is the example that's f- that you go to. That's why it's a famous story. Yeah, there's it's lots the people extreme who, example. Sure. And there's lots of people who weren't known who right. had the same thing happen to them. I'm just saying it's very lucky that John Lennon had a very strong physical and mental constitution that he was able to keep himself together and, through and all hopefully this. the people around him too we don't we don't know now i got a question on like you know going back to she said she said when it's like she said i know what it's like to be dead mm. you know is that connected to this or is that just no, another coincidence based on that peter fonda which was a true story right yeah i mean he's basing that song on that, that okay story right all so right i don't think i don't maybe he was connecting it but but I, it just feels to me like okay i guess like with with acid there's always a thing with acid and death you know, those two things uh, connect, not because acid leads to that. And I'm not like an anti-drug person, you know. Um, I am. What Dave Dave is, because as we've established, <laughs> he is a square. <laughs> but uh, but there is, a, there is a bit, you know, in when you take acid, when you open the doors to perception, as you say, uh, that, you know, death will enter into it. And you're like, oh, I, I get it now. I see what that. And, sure. and if you think too much about it, you might go on a bit of a bad trip. And that's, you know. That's it's it's you good. can I mean, you can think a lot about it. I mean the fact is that you're kind of roping Paul McCartney into this too, although he had not taken acid at this time. So mm. he was someone who was writing without this kind of outlook that you're you're putting to that say John Lennon had right. particularly, or George George Harrison as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, now please, what know. now with the song? So what John wanted with his song was to obviously con- convey this idea of this song, convey this idea of this acid trip. So he came to the studio with this song. And said to, you know, all these squares around him and said, I want you to take this song. <laughs> all these Daves. And make this song, you know. And he said, I wanted to sound like, there's a few different quotes. Like he wanted to sound like a thousand monks chanting on a hill. He wanted to sound like the Dalai Lama. Dalai, Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama, yeah. Chanting on a, on a mountain. So there's a few kind of variations of that, what he wanted it to sound like. Now, and he wanted to hire a thousand monks to sing the song. <laughs> Now, where do you for go to whatever a, reason, where George do you go Martin, to a monk yeah, agency? George Martin was not willing to do that. So there was a few. There was a. <laughs> you few, know what? Uh, I bet they'd work for free. I don't think you have to pay the monks, right? No, I, prob- well, I don't know. Maybe I don't think so. I, I think they have to work for free. That's my. That's, that's my assumption. If you're a monk, that's they have to do. You can't take money. Nope. So I mean, it's a, it was a fairly simple backing track. It's, it was just guitars, bass, drums, organ, piano, right. and tambourine. That made up the backing track. What made it interesting was. The fact that the Beatles came back the next day and made the song into the greatest song ever. 
It's not the okay. greatest song ever, but it's just fantastic. It's okay, a fantastic well, let's, song. Let me let me just go with this. You, this is definitely your favorite Beatles album. This yeah. is your favorite song on the album. Yeah. So and it's the not Beatles- my favorite Beatles song though. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, so it's not your favorite Beatles song. No. Have we gotten to that yet no, in our show? Got, we have not got to that Beatles song. How would you rank this song in your favorite Beatles songs? I don't know. I can't. I you can't don't want to do that. Yeah, I don't want to do okay, that. Okay, but this is your favorite song on this album. Uh, there's lots of good songs on this. I mean, this album is just like it's like. If you took like we if you have made gone a chart from the greatest song ever, if you to, made a chart, well, man, just, this song has fallen in the charts it's not this, of this it's not that. It's podcast. Just that, it's just that if the you, last five minutes, if you made like a chart, it would be pretty much like a straight line across. Okay. of of all the well, songs. Well, I heard album. a lot of hyperbole five minutes ago about this song. Okay, this song, so but just, this song is fantastic. Justify your hyperbole, sir. Because of, you know the reason the song is great. One one of the blows my mind is it's the first song. Like on the album, it's the last song, and so it doesn't feel like that big of surprise, right? Right. But when you think about the fact that the Beatles you know, come into the studio, they're like, okay, we finished Rubber Soul. Mm-hmm. We're going to make a new album. Let's start by making like the craziest song with like the, you know, this, the, the greatest, craziest loops and backwards things and speeded up stuff. Right. And this is going to be our, this is going to be the first song we started on this album. And it's going to permeate the rest of the album too. Yes, it does. It's not just that. It's just that this, everything they did on this song mm-hmm. finds its way into other songs on the album. Sure does. Okay. You know? Yeah. And so, so, like I say, they came back the next day, and so they started to overlay all, all these extra effects, reverse cymbals, and uh, reverse guitar, and then the process vocals. So John's voice is ADT, heavily ADT for much of the song, and then for near the, the last part of the song, it, it was put through a Leslie speaker. We talked about the Leslie speaker before, because it was used on Help for It's Only Love. The guitar had that kind of weird sound on it, mm-hmm. and so... Because what it was was it was a speaker that was inside a Hammond organ, and you could control the speed. It would it would spin around inside. This part of it would pivot, and it would it would create this kind of a a swirling effect. Right. And so so they put John. So what uh, Jeff Emmerich did is he bro- he cut into the he cut the wire and he he patched in the 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 vocals so that their vocals ran instead of the vocal instead of the Hammond organ running through the speaker. The vocals ran oh, through wow, this okay. through this Leslie speaker and it created this weird swirling effect and that was supposed to be like instead of having the actual thousand monks we'll have john with his voice less lead for this i would like part of the song i would like to see uh, a science museum do the tech of the beatles like wouldn't that be fascinating it's just like because of all these innovations that seem to have come Mm -hmm. from them and just like match them up to the songs they were invented in and then just uh show people how that worked that would be that would be a good little science exhibit what, hear that science museums what, that do that the swirling effect lennon's uh, lennon's other plan for it was for him to be tied to the ceiling with a rope <laughs> and then swung around in a circle so that he would be singing it back and forth near the mic yeah uh-huh they okay george martin said no yep and whenever john well, asked the, the when, price of rope <laughs> and whenever john asked about it they'd always say we're looking into it john yeah by that point john was at the end of his rope. so yeah the process vocals and then a sitar was added mm-hmm and then a tambura drone. A tambura is kind of a which is it's kind of a bass sitar almost. Okay, and it's often used as to create uh, drones. Like, like um, if you want to meditate to a to a tambura, you can go onto YouTube and there's like hour long, uh, just playing one note that you can sit to oh, and, and okay. meditate. Yeah, it's nice. Um, so uh, yeah, so all that was done. Then the other then that was part of it. So they added that to it. Then um, McCartney who. Been, he had listened to Stockhausen's uh, Gesang der Jünglicke, which is basically like songs for for youths, song for youths, which is like a it's a kind of one of the very first electronic uh, kind of modern compositions using tape loops and stuff to create to create the the soundscape of the, of this the song. 
And so what they would do, what, what they would do, and it's kind of complicated. <laughs> they would remove everything in this is complicated. You would remove the erase head from the from your recorder. And then you'd spool a length of tape onto it, and then you would record over and over onto that length, and it would saturate. Wow. And make a loop. And so they would, so they took the, so um, they decided they were going to use these loops and create all these kind of little like sounds that would kind of float in and out of the song. Mm -hmm. And so the Beatles went home and they created about 30 loops and they brought them back to George Martin and he selected about 16 of them. But actually they don't use that many on the, on the songs because what, what they had to do with them was because they had to have, there's different machines playing the loops throughout Abbey Road Studios. Mm -hmm. And they had these technicians and they were keeping the, the tension with a pencil. They're holding the loops with a pencil to keep them ten the tension in the machines because the machines couldn't play them because they, they weren't set up that way. Right. So they're running through the tape head, running through the playhead, and they're just keeping the, the tension with a pencil to act like wow. another reel. And so they had, there's a seagull effect, which, is, which was actually Paul McCartney laughing, backwards sped up. <laughs> there was an orchestral code, a chord of B-flat major, a Mellotron, John's Mellotron playing on its flute setting. Another Mellotron oscillating in 6-8 time from B-flat to C on its string setting. Okay. And then a, a rising scalar phase on a sitar, which is probably George's contribution. And all of them were, were very speeded or reversed. So they all had different sounds to them. And so what they did is they had to, they had to do, record it live. So uh, each of the Beatles sat at the mixer. There was four, four controls. And they controlled when things appeared in the song. Um, uh, George Martin was in charge of something else. He was in charge of balance. And then Jeff Emmerich kept his eye on, on the meters to make sure nothing went spike too much because it would have ruined their mix. And so it was all mixed live. So what you hear is a live performance of the song recorded onto the, onto the track and then put onto the album. And so it was all done. So whatever they did, they could never repeat again because yeah. it was all done live as they, you know, bring up these various different effects and stuff like that during the song. And then... The last part of it is the uh, guitar solo, which was actually Paul McCartney's guitar solo from Taxman. Slowed down a tone, cut up, and then run backwards. Oh, for crying out loud. So, yeah, that was, like, that was added later on to it. Okay, guys, that was some good trivia. Am I wrong? <laughs> Am I wrong? Like, I know you've got your choice of Beatles podcasts, mm -hmm. and you can listen to them, and they're all fine. Are you going to hear all that stuff? You're not. And that's why I'm telling you all. Tell your friends. <laughs> Tell your friends about this one because okay, apparently, apparently we're new and noteworthy. We are, uh, yeah. We okay. okay. We we're on the Canadian iTunes. They put us up as new and noteworthy. But then again, there's only five podcasts out of Canada. So let's be <laughs> let's be fair. Okay, right. that brings us to the wow. End. We are really yeah. We're really running late. I'm sorry about that. There's just so much to talk about this album because I love will it so much. White album podcast be. It's going to be that's going to be two shows. Is it going to be two shows? Oh, yeah, be two okay, shows we're sure. going to be recording that over like a one week period. Yeah, yeah. We'll be see. Two shows. But thank you. But thank before we oh, go, okay. I was all right. Then I, I was just want to thank. Sure sounded like i was going to wrap that up but go ahead dave i want to thank lane because lane had thank some you, nice lane. questions yeah, absolutely we, i hope we answered your ringo or your george harrison one i know you had some other questions he wanted to know about the best beatles books and stuff like that but i thought we'd talk about that at the end of, of our yeah run. we'll have some bonus podcasts at the yeah. end where we're, we'll we cover the films we'll do we some the books up. yeah maybe some of the graphic novels we're going to tie that into books we'll see and then and rock band dave will have like a whole episode, a whole episode just where he's just angry at rock band my first well one of the first times i played it was with you and we did the whole Abbey Road medley. Yeah. So we did this 20-minute long song. Oh, but what's song funny with, about with that singing. was, was Dave did not know it was the full medley. Yeah. So he thought, like, he's he's just in it for the one song. And by the end of it, oh, he was a, you know, he's a fit man. Yeah. But there was only so much you could do. So he was, he was like, do. almost yeah. on the floor by yeah. the end of it. Well, that's because I started at such a high register as well. And yeah. By the time, yeah. You do like singing well, that's high. stupid, very speedy. <laughs> um, 
And I also want to thank Marcus Harwell, another one of our listeners. Actually, a double listener. He listens to Sneaky Dragon as well, as mm-hmm. I believe Lane does. But, um, By the way, I'd advise you all to listen to Sneaky Dragon as well to get the full story. Because we do. There's it. details uh, that we leave <laughs> out that we, you know, and you'll put it all together sure. like a puzzle. Well, Marcus uh, was very helpful. He put a metronome to uh, You Won't See Me. And he discovered that it actually does slow down by three beats per minute throughout the song. So no wonder I thought my, my batteries were running out when I first heard it. So so thanks for that, Marcus. Yeah, really, that's great, I too. really appreciate yeah. it. That's awesome. That's trivia. a significant amount of, of, of yes, it is. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot. I yeah. also like that he had a metronome. Good for him. Good for him, yes. <laughs> I have a metronome on my phone, but that's uh, it's, fun, it's fun to have a metronome. So anyway, thank you all for listening. Thank you all for contributing reviews and comments on the website. On iTunes. And emails. We got some nice emails from people. Also appreciate it. And, uh, yeah. I found out that when I, when I talk about that girl who's sitting on her bed listening to the Beatles in mm. the 60s, yeah. one, she exists. Yes. And two, she wrote us. She wrote us? It it was like a fictional character I made up, and they and they they called. It was amazing. It's amazing, and she, she or uh, I wrote. She does a uh, podcast called the Disneyland Gazette. So if you're interested oh, in Disneyland, right? you should listen to that podcast. Oh, very neat. I am interested in Disneyland. So um, yes. So well, I guess that's all. Thanks for everyone. Thanks for everyone for listening. And next time it's Sergeant Pepper. I think is pretty exciting. That's very exciting. And Strawberry Fields. And, and if Penny you Lane. if you do want to contact us, we haven't we've said thank you, but we haven't said how to. Oh, uh, dot is our website. You can uh, message us there. Of course, we're on Facebook, and uh, if you want to message through uh, Twitter, uh, sneaky underscore dragon. There, that's all the contact information. Dave, again, good for the minutia, not good for the big picture. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but amazing on the trivia. This was your best trivia uh, podcast so far. Well done. I don't envy being you having to top this one next time. We have a pretty much a topper album though with Beatles with uh, Sergeant Pepper. I think. Yeah, I know you're really going to have to ignore your daughters this week. Yep. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Uh, for completely Beatles, I've been Ian Boothby and I've been David Dedrick. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye. <laughs>